Hello, friends. This episode of the podcast and all of them are fueled by Caveman Coffee. Go to cavemancoffeeco.com and find out what the fuck is up. Um, sponsors. Oh, before sponsors, comedy dates I got coming up. Got quite a few. Um, here's a couple new ones. The Bob that just went on sale, Bob Carr Theater in Orlando, Florida. That is uh, December 18th. And the Ka Theater in Las Vegas, Nevada. That is December 11th. And uh, that's at the MGM. Uh, and then, of course, December 31st, the Wiltern Theater in L.A., New Year's Eve, the big New Year's Eve show with Honey Honey Band, Duncan Trussell, Ari Shafir, Joey Diaz, and me. Ooh, can't wait for that one. Sponsors. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Fandango. Fandango, uh, I'm excited to have this as a sponsor because I use that app all the time. I used it for the longest time. And... Um, Long before uh, uh, I knew it was even a podcast sponsor. I've used this shit for years. Fandango is a great way to get tickets online. It's so easy to do. You download the Fandango app. Go to Fandango.com or go to Fandango.com. Choose your theater, showtime, and uh, you can check out as a Fandango VIP. Your tickets are guaranteed so you won't get sold out. And just in time for this weekend, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro, the guy that did uh, Pan's Labernith. Uh, he's got a fucking awesome, scary horror movie coming out called Crimson Peak. And uh, I just Googled it. I think it gets really good reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. What has it got on RottenTomatoes.com? I think it's like, I think it's uh, on IMDb. It's like, yeah, 8.3 out of 10. And uh, I don't know. I love fucking horror movies. I'm definitely going to go see that. But you can you can see that through Fandango. You can get your tickets. Really easy to use. Uh, just go and download the app. Use Fandango to get your tickets to see Crimson Peak or any movie you want to see this weekend. Download the Fandango app or go online, Fandango.com. It's the best way to get tickets uh, for movies. I use that shit all the time. We're also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way. I mean, really can't say this enough. The best way to create your own website. So simple and so easy to use. It used to be incredibly difficult to create your own website um, and very difficult to change once your website was up. With Squarespace.com, super easy to do and not expensive at all. $8 a month, free domain name if you sign up for a year. It starts at 8 bucks a month. I mean, that is very, very reasonable when you're talking about creating a professional looking website that you can do on your own just as easily as just normal drag and drop shit that you would do with a computer. Like if you can attach a photograph to an email, you can create your own website. And I'm not exaggerating. Each website comes with a free online store. And there's a thing called cover pages, which is a feature that allows you to set up a beautiful one page online presence in minutes. You don't even have to use a credit card to try it out because Squarespace is very confident with what they're doing. Um, you, you can't go wrong. I mean, we, we held a contest last year for Squarespace websites. You would never imagine when you looked at these websites that they were just made by regular people with no website coding experience whatsoever, just using the easy-to-use Squarespace interface. You don't have to use your credit card to try it out. Try it out. That's how confident they are. And then once you decide, you use it, you build your website, and you go, oh, my God, this is the shit. Then use the offer code Joe, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go to squarespace.com, 
Start a free trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today. And then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code Joe to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you, Squarespace, for your support of this podcast. Ooh-wee. We're also brought to you each and every episode by Onnit.com. Onnit.com is the best place to shop for total human optimization. What does that mean? We sell products that are designed to optimize the way your mind and body function, including inspiration in the form of the Onnit Academy link, which is filled with great workouts, diet tips, uh, articles on the science of exercise physiology and nutrition, and there is a physical Onnit Academy that is in Austin, Texas. It is a fantastic gym, one of the best equipped gyms on the planet Earth. And if you live in Austin, Texas, you are in luck. Uh, Other than that, go and check out all the cool strength and conditioning equipment, supplements, foods, all kinds of great shit. Go to onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN. Save 10% off any and all supplements. All right, my guest today is... The wonderful and talented Mr. Steve Rinella. Steve Rinella is an author. He is a professional hunter. He um, hosts the television show Meat Eater and the Meat Eater podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. And he has a new book out called The Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game, which is so detailed and so filled with information. And it's interesting. Even if you have no desire whatsoever to hunt, you should you should check it out because it's, it's an really, really well done book. And he's just a fucking fascinating guy that has a cr- tremendous amount of life experience. We talked a lot about hunting. We talked a lot about his travels, um, hanging out with the indigenous people of Bolivia and eating monkeys, all kinds of crazy shit. It's just always love talking to this guy. And uh, he's just awesome and fascinating human being. So without any further ado, please welcome Steve Rinella. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. So tell me, how the fuck do you have the time to do this? I'm looking at this book, The Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game. Steve Rinella's here, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Rinella. Put on my fucking knees here. Well, I like that. like that, huh? Sporty. How do you have the time to do this book? You know, when I got into doing the book, um, that was a great opening to the show, by the way. Thank you very much. When I when I started doing that book, I thought it'd take eight months, man. Uh, we just got on this idea. Like, you know what I wanted to do is I wanted to do a book about uh, field care and butchering and stuff. But then someone said it should be bigger. It should be like the complete guide. Or we started using the word complete. And what I keep saying now is how I should – for a long time, I uh, really regretted including the word complete in the proposal. Because as we sat down, um, initially I would sit down with, with Doty, who you know well, Dan Doty, and we would just start mapping out. We had like a board, you know, and sticky notes. And we'd just start mapping out like what would complete look like. And then it grew and grew and Doty – you know, he was working on the show and moved on to some other things and still was involved. And other guys came in and Giannis, you know, we started working on it and just trying to manage the idea. And pretty soon, I mean, a lot of people worked on that book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was in there on the writing process and it turned into several, it took several years to do them. Then when I took it to my publisher, she had me in 
it's published by Spiegel and Grau at Random House, and, and she had me into the office, and, and it, it, we had turned it in. It, it was going to be 700 and some pages long. And she said, like, it's just books aren't, like, you just don't really, you know, you got to understand, like, that's a big book. You don't really do, yeah, you don't really do illustrated books that big. Um, so we were going to hack a bunch out, but then we kind of hit on this idea just to publish it in two things as volume one and volume two. But it wasn't just as simple as splitting it down the middle. So uh, it took probably, another, I don't know, almost a year maybe to to turn it into volume one, big game, volume two, small game. That's a big effort, man. I, I, I know how much you work and how much you travel and how many hunts you go on. And I don't just know how the fuck you did this. I remember being down, we were down in, uh, I was down on fam- with my family, just vacation in Baja, and I remember sitting there, and we were fishing and stuff, and we had two babies with us, and I'm sitting there trying to, like, work on that book. I just worked on it all the time. But but the thing is, I don't want to, like, I did a lot of work on it, but everybody, a lot of the guys you know worked on it a ton, too. You know, like, all that recipe stuff, um, you know... Doty, like we did a big shoot. Doty kind of organized a shoot with some other folks, and, and like we organized a week of just cooking and photographing. But the other thing is, a lot of the stuff in there too, the images you'd kind of look at the image, you'd be like, well, how would you go and get all these images? Like you'd never be able to justify getting those images to make a book. But we had uh, access to so many hours of hunting footage of all the stuff, so we're able to do something called screen grabs. So in there is a lot of stuff where we were able to pull images to illustrate all these different procedures and stuff that that you would just never go out and get those kind of photographs. You would have to kill a ton of animals yeah, just be like really expensive, but we were able to draw back. And the advantage of filming hunts for so many years now is that anything you wanted to explain we'd sit there and be like, "Oh, you know what would be perfect." And we'd just go in and, and pull stills out of images and, and put them right in the books. So we have it's like as you look at it it's kind of, you know, it's beautiful. Another guy, a lot of the photography, like the stuff on the covers by this guy, John Hafner, who's a hunter and photographer. Um, we became friends with John working it up, and he opened up his vast library of wildlife imagery. Um, and just gave us kind of like the keys to his whole catalog, and so we had just a pick of some of the best stuff out there. But I, I'm I'm real happy with it, man. I'm proud of it. And, and uh, I always tell people, like, if you get it, there's no, there's no way you're going to be disappointed in it. No, it's it's excellent. It's so comprehensive, and it's I don't know of any other book like it. I mean, maybe there's one out there that's like it, but it's uh, there's so much involved. And even if you're not into hunting, it's really fascinating the tactics and strategies and why you have to do certain things and and what's involved in in the the pursuit and tracking the habitat of these animals and why they live in these certain places. It's and a lot really of le- we put a lot good. of legal stuff in there. The next one, that one's out. The next one, the small game one, comes out in December. But yeah, they, they've been they've been doing well, man, and we've heard great things about them. Well, you've expanded so much, you know. And uh, when I first started talking to you, it was right after you got done doing the Wild Within, and mm-hmm. then you were starting Meat Eater at the time. And now, you know, I really think that the show has hit its stride in a crazy way. Like this, the first episode that I saw of this season was the one where you went hunting for coos deer and you didn't even kill anything. And it was one of your best episodes. And it was just because it was so much involved that it just, it's not just a hunting show, you know, like 
you were talking about your relationship with your father and how you would love to bring your father to this place. You know, your father's dead. You were talking about how, you know, you have this tumultuous relationship with him and how you'd want to bring him to this place to see what this is like because it's so beautiful. And and there's no music. And you were just out there talking. And it was like, man, this is some really deep, compelling shit. Yeah, we had no – we had no – intention of doing that show that way until later when the editor looked at it and he went up doing it there's no music it's just like the sound of the wind it was awesome it, it's my favorite episode it's mine it's, too. it's my favorite one we've ever done and i was nervous at first um because you know it's a to do a hunting show i mean you're working in a really traditional genre that just in many ways doesn't invite a lot of innovation or, or one might think it doesn't invite a lot of innovation you know yeah you could get away with thinking that, but but anytime we've done something that really goes against the grain of what you picture is going to happen in a hunting show, it's like people that like the show have always liked it. Like we can run shows where no one gets anything, mm-hmm. you know. When we're out, if we're out filming and no one gets anything, it, it, you know, we we call them skunkers. I get real nervous, you know. What I mean, like I start getting real nervous from a from a production standpoint, right? But in the end, man, I think that people. Um, that, that fans of the show are willing to go along with you on that if you're giving them something else instead. Yeah. You know? Oh, well, you definitely did. We just filmed like we just filmed a dove hunt down in Virginia um, with my buddy Ronnie Bame, who you met. You know, the daily bag limit on doves is 15, right? So it's me and Ronnie, another guy. We all limit out. That's a tremendous amount of shooting, you know? So then you're kind of... It's a kill fest. Yeah, so you're sort of thinking, yeah, they're not, they're five ounce birds. But, and then you're sort of thinking, like, man, this is going to be a great show. But it doesn't, and, and, and I hope that it will be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, right. it's like, it, like having, like getting stuff doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be great because you kind of, there's always like, a, there's always a story hiding around down in there. And when we're getting ready to go somewhere to film, I'm always getting pressure. In a friendly way, from Giannis or from Doty, you know, who are like, what's the story? You know, like, what's the – and I just feel like I understand where they're coming from. Like, it's their job to, to wonder about that stuff. But I always feel like you're just going to wind up responding to something that happens. What what I think is important about your show, I think there's a lot of things important about you and what you represent in this world. But one of the things that I think is important in your show is – if there's a lot of these shows, these hunting shows, without mocking them or saying anything bad about them, but they they're very simple. They're, they they appeal to simple people. They have like this simple ideology that goes through them, and I think you you get caught in that genre, and everybody sort of starts thinking, well, this is what these shows are about. These shows are all about like go sit in a tree stand and you know, and when when you you shoot this animal that you named earlier in the spring, and you got trail cam pictures of it. I mean, a lot of those shows are the same goddamn show every week. Yeah, and it gets you you get it in your head. Oh, this is what a hunting show is, and this is what hunting is, and I think that's a it's a problem with the stereotype that people have with hunting. They connect hunting to sort of a like a low vibration of thinking, you know that. Yeah, you know what I mean. No, I understand what you're saying. I don't know if it's you, like you being a a, a comedian, or I notice you guys always say comic. You being a comic, I don't know. I'm guessing you watch other guys. Yes, I could I could see in that world you probably would really want to watch other guys. I haven't found it helpful to watch hunting shows. Um, 
I, I generally don't watch hunting shows um, because I don't want to wind up. Uh, I don't want to wind up having the stuff that I do be a response to that. Right. You know, I'm always afraid. I'm always afraid of that of like feeling like something would get in your head, and even if you didn't intend to, that you'd wind up responding to it. You know. So I haven't watched a whole lot, and I don't like to hack on. I, I don't like to hack on. Like people often invite me to like hack on hunting shows, and and I just don't. There's some things I see a little bit that trouble me, like some of the ways that female hunters are portrayed as like little sex dolls, you know, with the mascara, and it just doesn't feel like when I think about my daughter growing up and going hunting, I just don't feel that that will. I don't want that to be how she finds her way into it as sort of like every man's fantasy. Mm-hmm. That stuff bugs me a little bit, but. Um, I haven't found it that helpful to watch, so I don't think of, I don't do like a reaction to what's going on. I just try to make things that, uh, to to show just like the, the complex relationship I had with hunting before I started doing this. Filming hunts definitely changed the way I think about hunting, and, and in a way I try to react against that. I try to recapture like how I used to feel about going hunting when I wasn't having this production thing in my head. About like making a show, you know, right. being worried about making a show. Yeah, I, well, I think that it's 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 the elephant in the room. I mean, how how do you avoid thinking about it while you're out there and you're doing it? You have to consider. It's one of the episodes that you did your podcast recently. We were talking about with Casey Casey Levere, yeah, where you were talking about uh, all the the different aspects of putting together a show, and that you kind of th- feel like sometimes that filming a show in a way. It kind of, it, it, it's almost like prostituting it. Yeah. It makes me feel a little bit evil. I feel evil for being involved in, uh, I feel a little bit evil for being involved in TV. <laughs> Partially. Well, that's also because your wife is into publishing and she wanted you to stay within the world of book publishing. It's a very respected thing. Whereas TV, especially like hunting shows or even reality shows, which was your first thing. It's filled with bullshit and yahoos. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, when I when I feel a little bit embarrassed, not not so much. I mean, I obviously do it, and I and I love doing it, and I fight to try to keep being able to do it. But like, so in the back of my head, like I, you know, I do carry that with me. You know, I do carry it with me that I think of <laughs> like I think of TV as yeah, it's just is like a it just it just something about it feels kind of base, man. You know what I mean? Well, I think a lot of that might have to do with your experience on your first show too, yeah. where they were trying to like let a fucking moose out of a cage and you shoot it with a musket. I mean, they were trying to pressure you into a lot of really stupid fake shit because they were operating under the guidelines of you know quote unquote reality TV. Yeah. That's how they do it. What's what's important to them is getting the shot, not whether or not the shot actually happened. I remember one time being in a meeting early on when we were starting to work on that show, and uh, a guy that I later became friends with, and he still does like those kind of reality type shows that come out of Alaska. But he uh, he. We were talking about how much time, you know, like I was always like, we need more time, we need more time because of finding animals. And he, and early on, the first time we ever met, he's like, well, that's why they have wranglers, you know? And that was sort of like where, that was where we began with that. I liked doing, I, you know what I liked about it, doing Wild Within, and it was so many years ago now. Um, we did eight of them. I liked, I fell in love with the, the, the guys that I traveled with bad i mean like 
when we quit doing that show, the show didn't get renewed. I mean, they knew we were still filming the last episode, and we already knew it was going down hill, right? Um, just the viewership wasn't there, the wrong viewership, and you know, or like the view, the numbers weren't there, and the numbers that were there weren't the right numbers, like not the demographic they were after, right? Um, and you weren't going to fix that. But I had fallen in love so bad with the guys that I worked with that it was like it was like getting broken up with by a girl <laughs> that we weren't going to hang out together anymore and travel together anymore. I mean, it was bad. You know these guys, you know. Which guys? Oh, like everyone, man. Mo, Nick. all those guys were on that show. Yeah, Mo, Nick. Well, you took them over. To the... No, I know. So yeah, so I out. still I still associate with them. But at the time, like now, I try to wonder when I look at that show, and there's some good stuff about it, and there's a lot of bad stuff about it, um, embarrassing stuff about it. When I look at it now, and I try to go like, why did I want that to? Why did I so badly want that to continue? Um, and I did at the time, you know, I really wanted to keep doing it, not knowing that I would find such happiness doing what I'm doing now, um, that I'd find such a, like a, a, a sense of peace doing what I'm doing now. I feel like I'm being constructive and working with good people and doing good work. At the time I was just devastated that we weren't going to go. And now I'm like, why did I feel that way? And I think in some ways it's just cause I like running around with those guys. Well, it's fun, <laughs> man. Look, we had we, a lot of fun. When and you we took had us enemies, to Montana. We had enemies that we could like. There was like a gang of us, and we had, and we felt like we were surrounded by enemies. Oh, the enemies being the just everyone, all these people around, and we we're like, man, if we can go another season, we're going to clean house, <laughs> right? And it's, we're going to turn this into this perfect thing. And it was like, yeah, it was yeah, just, we were like, uh, I don't know, man. That's we were the like, story of every television, dude. Show. We were like warriors, man. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Well, I still a, love those guys. There's man. a fun bonding thing that yeah. goes with those shows that's different than any other show. You, do, you film a normal show. Say if you do like a television show, it, even whether it's on a set or it's on location, you go, you film it, and then you go either to your hotel or you go you know, back to your house. Then you show up back on the set in the morning. And there's a bonding involved in that. But there's a totally different kind of bonding when you're in, say, like when you took us to the, the Missouri Breaks down the Missouri River, you know, in Montana. And you're, you're, you're in the wilderness together. And you're, you, you know, your, your only source of entertainment is you're sitting around at a campfire at night, shooting the shit, laughing. Yeah. And there's this crazy bond that you have with people when you do something like that. And when you're doing it over and over and over and over again, like you're doing, like the regular world of civilization seems so stupid. The red lights and the fucking telephone poles. You just want to... You just want to go yep. back. You want to go back to the fun stuff when you're out there in the woods l- looking for a buck or trying to find a ram or whatever the fuck you're trying to do. It's like there's this crazy heightened reality to that life that especially when you have a bunch of men together and you have the opportunity to just do – it's almost like playtime. Like you have this this wild existence, you know, and then – it gets taken away. Yeah. I'm a Klansman, and I don't mean that with a K. <laughs> Klansman yeah. with a C. And it, like, I do feel like, like, all through growing up, I had, yeah, like, well, I, I, I still hang out. Like, my, I still consider, I still regard my two brothers like the main people that I hang out with, you know, even in, in a time sense, that's not true. Like, in, in his mind, like, you know, days per year, that's not true. But they're like the main thing outside of my immediate, my wife and, 
kids. Like my, yeah, you know, I think my two brothers are sort of like this main thing. And but we always had these guys that we hung out with growing up. The same guys. We still hang out. Like just this summer, we had people out to our shack, our, our fishing shack, and it's like mostly guys from Michigan that we've known a long time. You know, and I do kind of feel that. Uh, that, that that hunting and fishing for me do form those kind of relationships, you know, and traveling together forms those kind of relationships. I always thought I'd have been good in the military, maybe because you get to like have this little core of guys, you know. And yeah, traveling with those guys that I worked with, and traveling, you know, and now it's just like revolving cast of members. Like faces change, but it still feels the same. As yeah, it's like this little like a little clan, you know, like yeah. a little clique of fellas. You know? well, even and, and I like I do, man. I just like I, I like that kind. Of, I like hanging out. with three or four people out in the woods, you know? It's fun. I mean, even me and Callum have only done a few episodes with you, but Callum was pestering me the other night. He's like, when are we going again? When are we going hunting again? I got to get out of here. He's like, I got to get out of here. Let's go. Let's go hunting. Call we, Steve. We He's were like, just Steve. this summer, August 15th. <laughs> we were on Prince Wales Island. Got sunburned. Sunburned? That's hilarious. Killed bucks. Got sun. I mean, it was like you wouldn't have believed. I believe it. That pollution, man. One of the things that I took from that trip. It was trip, so nice. I was, if I, I would have done anything to swap the weather. Because going up there, like, yeah, I, I got like, uh, I got Dan Doty mentioned just right now. But Doty had said, he's like, hey, I'm never going back to this island, you know, and like, we're done with this stupid island after our trip. And we went up there and he was very like, you know, he had a very tentative feeling about the weather. We kept watching the forecast and it went out being nice. And we went up there, it's just like sunshine deer everywhere it was perfect no nah, you wouldn't believe it man it's august you got to go in august is that yeah. the move Giannis got a Giannis got a buck like doing after hours doing a little really? after hours hunting. after you're filming yeah i took something away very important from that show and something that you said uh w- w- i think you said it when we were in the tent when we were doing your podcast you're talking about the different kinds of fun that there's fun yeah. that's fun while you're doing it, like a roller coaster, but it's not fun after it's over. But there's other things that are fun way after you're doing it, but while you're doing it, it's miserable. Yeah. I stole that theory from two guys. A guy named Hardcore Jeffy and a guy named Mark <laughs> and a guy named Matt Raff. Why is his name Hardcore Jeffy? He's hardcore. <laughs> um Yeah, Hardcore Jeffy and Matt Rafferty. <clears throat> And recently, someone sent me a link where I think that it had, I feel it was like an ad of some sort that alluded to that. Like an advertisement that alluded to that. But it was like a mountaineering thing. So I don't Mm -hmm. know. Yeah. But I I just don't want to, I don't want to take claim for that theory. But they had this thing like the four levels of, you know, the four or five levels of fun. These guys out of Anchorage. You know, and, and uh, yeah, it was profound. But it's it is profound, and I never thought about it until that trip. That they're like roller coasters aren't fun after you do them at all. No, like I've I was on a roller coaster last week. Is that right? Yeah. Was, what, what brought not that even on? Last week, you the lo- local carnival. Local. It was a fucking terrifying roller coaster. I took photos of the the base of it and put it on my Instagram just because it's so fucking ridiculous. They have this setup, and when you look at this setup, you're like, why the fuck did I? Because it's so bad. It's like pictures of uh, – here, let me show you. I'll pull it up. There's uh, these b- bricks that they have or uh, blocks that they have that's holding up the uh, the base of this thing. It's like, like a gambling theme. Yeah. Well, you can see it on the, the screen a little bit better. But 
they have the foundation, so they have these posts. And then a and bunch of shims being under. Held, yeah, it's fucking <laughs> blocks of wood. I mean, just, they're not nailed down. I mean, it's it's so fucking ridiculous that you get in that thing and it's spinning people around 50 miles around. That's pretty uh, funny that they just, yeah. whatever they could find, a couple bricks. It's a full-on carny experience. A, cu- a cotton board. <laughs> but uh, after it's over, and the only thing that's fun is looking at this picture. But after it's over, you know. I didn't even notice that at first, man. Yeah. I went yeah, on so the, the, that, yeah. yeah, roller coasters. Fun in the moment, but not fun later. Yeah. And then there's things that are t- terrifying while you're experiencing it. But after you survive it, you're like, ah, that was, yep. that was crazy. That was awesome. That trip was a, a miserable four or five days, whatever the fuck it was on that island. But after it was over, Callum and I laugh about that trip all the time. Yeah. We just fun. got back. We just got back from hunting in British Columbia. And it was it was just my feet are still because my feet were so cold for so long that my feet are still weird. Like when I lay in bed at night, they feel numb. Really? And it just I mean, just generally sucked. Fog, snow, spent whole days sitting under a tarp because you can't see anything in the fog. Um, It's still I, I, I plan on it seeming fun later. But not yet. Right now, it's not. <laughs> right now, I still think it sucked. Did I? Did I think I, in a couple months, I won't think it sucked. Didn't I call you when I got back to L.A. to tell you how fucking awesome yeah, I felt? You did. I, I. It was a quick turnaround. I was f- driving around L.A. and the sun was shining like it always is. The, it was warm like it always is. But I appreciated it on a level that I had never appreciated it before. Because being rain-soaked in that island, huddling up in that tent, and turn, I remember turning on that uh, little headlamp and seeing <laughs> mist everywhere inside the tent. I'm like, I thought in my stupid head that there was going to be a place that you would go to get dry. Uh-huh. Like, you would go inside the tent and you would get dry. Well, yeah, it's raining outside, but that's okay. You get in the tent, you'll be... No, there's no dry. There was no dry. The air was wet. The actual air everywhere around you was filled with moisture so everything was wet no matter what and so when i got back to la i felt fucking fantastic yeah i was like this is amazing and it it gave me an appreciation for la that i wouldn't have had if i didn't go through that we had to go home from something like that and then be in bed all warm with like your wife oh my god you know i've talked to you often about rourke denver Mm -hmm. you know he's like uh, was a navy seal officer and ran that buds program which is like this whole thing like You'd basically go there to suffer. And he was talking about how you think, like, you go into a SEAL's home, you think it's going to be all Spartan, you know, like he's sleeping on a stack of cardboard or something. He goes, those guys have, like, you go in there, it's like the Egyptian cotton, the <laughs> nicest, most comfortable homes, man. Because you wind up, after, like, the suffering, you so badly want to go be comfortable that they go, because, like, they go out of their way to have a comfortable house. You know, like more than normal people's because you want to just soak up comfort when you get the chance. <laughs> yeah, know? it makes sense. They don't want to live in a log cabin, sleep on a futon. Yeah, so you want to yeah. go home and lay on really nice sheets because <laughs> it might only be two nights, man. You know, you want to get your fill. <laughs> it totally makes sense. Um, I think having these conversations and uh, and th- what you're doing on your show is it's very it's very important because it's giving people a different sense of hunting. It's one of the things that I get all the time from tweets and Facebook messages and that people change their perspective because of your show and because of these conversations that you've had on my podcast and because of your podcast. 
people have changed their perceptions of it because people who don't experience hunting personally and they their ideas of it a lot of times are shaped by the portrayals of hunters in movies which are almost always negative yeah i mean especially the animated ones yeah like helmer fudd (laughs) no (laughs) yeah my kids watch my kids like this show about animals and it's like there's the bad guys it's it's like these two brothers and they have this cartoon show Wildcrafts? yeah yeah so there's like my kids love that show okay but there's there's like some recurring bad guys one of them's a chef it's like a chef who's out in the woods like he's always trying to hunt right out in the woods to make food and the other one's like maybe like like a gay seeming urbanite guy yeah, he's like a, a evil guy. Yeah, know, like a the real, dark hair guy. Yeah, yeah, but real, like real, mm-hmm. you know, just like kind of bad. You know, it's like you're, you're one hand telling you there's two people that are bad kids: is gay guys and, and chefs who hunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't want to watch that show. You won't let them watch it. No, I mean they learn they learn some good wildlife stuff, but I'm like I, I just don't want to. I'm not gonna let. I, no, I don't. I tell them that I tried to explain to them why I didn't like it. They didn't understand, but now I don't like them watching that show. That's hilarious. Yeah, my I don't like the way that like that they're like. I just can't have a show where like the bad guy is like some guy that like a chef who is always out trying to hunt. Like he's always trying to hunt endangered species. <laughs> But that show, like, the guy, like one of the guys, chef. I don't know if it's Chris or Martin, one of them is fat. I went to, I took my kid to their live show. They have a live show in Hollywood. Oh, it's yeah. It's fucking terrible. But for a five-year-old, awesome. You know, it's like really bad. They have costumes on. You know, they, they go into their superpowers. Yeah. They have like uh, the animal powers activate and they have these like things that yeah, they, they do. They, and, they can assume the attributes of whatever animal they're talking about. Yeah. But yeah. in the show, on the television show, it's cartoons. Yeah. So they can do all this crazy stuff. But, in but the it live starts show, with them going somewhere. Yes. Like the two bros, and they're jovial, very mm-hmm. chatty. Yeah. They go somewhere, and then, and then the show starts. Yeah. Yeah. In the live show, though, they don't go anywhere. And so in the live show, they just put on these outfits, and it's so fucking stupid. They put on like big rubber feet. They pretend to be a fox. Like it's just ridiculous. Really, not yeah, they have ears. That. They jump around on a trampoline and they 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 jump on trampolines to pretend that they have like serval cat powers. Yeah, it's and the trampoline's hidden behind a rock, but you can fucking see it. If but, I knew that those guys were big vegetarians, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, that's cool. No, they probably aren't. But I don't get. Yeah, I never even paid attention to the fact that 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 one guy is uh, uh, like sort of a hunter or a chef, and that's why he's the bad guy. Yeah, I never even paid attention. You're more sensitive to that than I am. I'm super. Sen- I'm overly sensitive. <laughs> when I hear people don't like their kids watch certain shows, like because of whatever, I'm like the guy. I don't. I don't like them watching stuff that has a negative portrayal of hunters. That's funny. <laughs> well, I'm writing this thing right now that I'll, I'll put out. Uh, probably uh tomorrow about uh all the people that got mad at me because I, I put up a picture of that elk last week um that got mad at me and then i went, went to their twitter pages or their instagram pages and i saw pictures of their cats yeah and i'm like what are you feeding your cat what you fe- you're feeding your cat cat food and where's that cat food coming from someone's killing animals someone's killing chickens They're no killing- it's probably some guy it's probably some guy running high seas drift nets that too out in international waters yeah that too raping the ocean that that's one of the things that you know it's so easy to fall in the trap talking about stuff that annoys you but mm-hmm. that's one thing is like 
people that, that you, you can have this holier than thou attitude. Like a lot of catch and release fishermen have it, you know. They'll go oh, out fishing, they'll let their trout go. And you know those sons of bitches go to a restaurant that night well, and order that. fish. And they're like, they don't like, well, whose fish is that? Yeah. <laughs> who's like whose favorite favorite area did that fish come from? You know, probably some place that's a lot more imperiled than where you live. Well, not only that, the cat the reality of catch and release is what, ten percent of them die, twenty yeah. percent of them die? Sometimes much higher. But yeah, it's that thing that like you just don't want to be you don't want to look at it, you know. Yeah. But yeah, if you got a cat and you're feeding it stuff like that, it's probably you're probably supporting some some uh you're probably supporting some fisheries practices that you would that you're glad you don't know about. Oh yeah, not, and not just fish, chicken, lamb, whatever the fuck you're feeding your cat. You're buying cat food, and cat food's animals because cats need protein. They they're not omnivores; they're predators. You can't. I mean, there, there's very few arguments to make any sense. You can feed your cat a vegan diet. Apparently, you can get away with it with some dogs. They can feed some dogs a primarily vegetable-based diet, and the, diet, the dogs are all right. Yeah. They're not, it's not optimum. But for cats, they get organ failure, cardiovascular failure. They go blind. It's a big issue with cats when you feed them, try to feed them a, a vegan diet. They go blind. Well, I'd also invite those uh, people, your critics, to understand that those elk wouldn't be here if it were not for hunter interest. In yeah, the, that's an interesting conversation. They just would not be here. Did you, um, I don't know if you've uh, listened to uh, the Radio Lab podcast on that guy. Uh, no, I didn't. The lion. No, the, I wanted to. I yeah. was gone when that happened, and so many people sent me links to it, but I still haven't listened to it. But it was about the guy that, it was about, about, some of the comple- yeah, about some of the complexities mm-hmm. of the guy that paid, I don't know, 350 grand to hunt a black rhino. Yeah, yeah. And I had that guy on the podcast. And he discussed it, and we we talked about it. And there, but what, what's interesting is they uh, had on another guy who was in the Radio Lab show that was a uh, I forget his position, but he's uh, someone who works to to help wildlife. And he was he was saying that it's the idea is ridiculous that you could kill these animals. And that you would say that you're working as a conservationist, but you still kill these animals. And that you're trying to protect them and make more of them and uh, let them breed and let them repopulate so that you can kill them. Yeah. And, like, that's preposterous. But the it, the real problem with any of these arguments is you got to know. Like, I always want to know, like, what do you – do you eat meat? Do you wear leather? Like, how – if you're making this argument against the hunting of these animals, like, where do you get your protein from? Are you getting your protein from all plant sources? Because in that case, maybe we can have this conversation about that. But if you're not, man, if you're choosing animals that you think are okay and not okay to kill and it's based on which ones are captive, that seems to me more fucked up. Yeah. It's, it's way more cruel, in my opinion, to – put an animal in a cage and and make that animal earmarked for death and you just stuff it and and keep fattening it up until you kill it and to think that somehow that's a that's a a better moral decision than going out and killing something in the wild but then there's the trophy hunting thing and that's where it gets weird when you you say well well these are animals that people aren't even eating yeah. you know like the lion thing which that guy that guy was just uh, cleared apparently of any wrongdoing you know, I never. It was so hard to figure out what exactly was going on there. I, I would love to know some of the, some of what was really going on with the with the lion thing because there's so many claims that were being made that just 
in some way didn't add up. Like that he had, um, you heard that they had lured it mm-hmm. out of a park. Right. I don't really know what that means. Now, if you, cause, because for instance, and people act like how bad that was that he had lured it out of a park. But in the U.S., an animal can move across borders freely. You know, it's generally illegal to fence in wildlife in some way that it can't get away. An animal can move across borders freely, and its own its public ownership doesn't change when it moves around. This is something I've tried to explain a, a, a thousand times. But if you have, let's take like some iconic park like Yellowstone National Park. If you have an elk in, in Yellowstone National Park and it jumps a border onto private land and then jumps a border onto federal national forest land, jumps a border onto state land, jumps a border into a subdivision, jumps a border into a county park. Throughout all of his uh, little journey there, he's always been the property of the state. Okay, When elk migrate out of Yellowstone National Park, they get hunted. You know, many, many, many animals that get hunted in Wyoming and Montana are animals that, as part of the year, spend time in Yellowstone National Park. My brother once drew a bighorn sheep tag for the upper Yellowstone Valley. And there's this peak near the Gardner entrance to Yellowstone National Park called Electric Peak. And a lot of bighorn sheep spend their summer on Electric Peak. When he had that tag, this is in 2005, I think, it's quite a while ago. When he had that tag, we were just waiting for snow to pile up on Electric Peak, and the sheep would begin migrating. And they would migrate down and spend their and, and spend the winter down in some grass, some like rangeland up and down the Yellowstone. So we would go there. We it was on our third trip to the area when we finally found sheep were migrating down out of the high country, out of Yellowstone National Park. We killed a sheep within a couple miles of Yellowstone National Park. So when people are talking about oh, like the how the lion belonged in the park was of the park, was lured off the park. If if you condemn that in and of itself, then you're really talking about something very revolu- that would have very revolutionary implications here in the U.S. that animals aren't able to freely move or that an animal becomes the possession of whatever land, ha- whatever land administration it happens to be right, on. But there's a big difference between an animal moving freely. But that's what I'm saying. Goal. When they say it lured off, right. I don't know. That's what, that's what I'm saying I would love to know. Like, I don't know the answer to this. Did they, did they physically walk into the park? No. What they did is they drove around the area outside the park with bait, and they drag a carcass. They drag a carcass behind a truck. That's, but that's true, standard but practice. not within the park. No, not within the park. Yeah. Standard practice. Not only that, lions have a huge area that they travel in, and they killed 28 other lions with tags, with collars, and it was never an issue. And this idea that this one lion was like this cherished, beloved lion, that it was only by Westerners who are like outsiders. So the people that live in Zimbabwe, they're fucking all monsters. They're all terrifying. Yeah. Some, Did you read that guy that wrote that yes. piece in the New York Times? Says, we, didn't, we didn't know about that lion. Yeah. It's great. Well, <laughs> in Zimbabwe, we don't cry for lions. You yeah. Know? I mean, that was the name of the piece. It was all talking about his family members that were terrified, where these people would go outside and they'd, they had a very real fear they were going to be killed by monsters, giant cats that will kill everything, anything kill people all the time you know jim shockey has this great show called uncharted have you watched it yep i know about that show yeah. great fucking show and i was watching last night's show he was in mozambique and um there's these villagers in mozambique that are just hunted by crocodiles and 
they showed dozens of people that were missing arms, missing feet, had giant holes in their head where a crocodile had just barely grabbed them. And these are the people that survived. And they, they all had stories. While they were there, uh, a woman was taken into the, in the water while they were in camp. Yeah. One of these women was washing clothes or gathering water, and a crocodile came and got her. And there's, there's nothing you can do. You just have to, they try to kill as many as they can. They bring in hunters to kill as many as they can. But to these poor people, these people are just horrified. We don't look at that the way we look at lions because they're cold and they're yeah. reptiles. And, but they're, it's just wildlife. But I think if you got to the point where you were facing where you might be looking at a genetic extinction of the crocodile, right? it would change. Yes. My, my thing, my interest in the, the, the lion controversy that came out of Africa, my interest in that is provincial in that. I was concerned about and I'm interested in the way that that's going to impact things here. You know, I'm not that interested in not that not that I have antipathy toward. I'm just not that 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 vested in what might happen with African big game hunting outside of how people's how the American imagination Or, or the way the the average American perceives hunting in his own country here in the U.S. would be colored by the actions of people in Africa and the, and the circumstances that go on in Africa. That's my interest in that landscape. As far as what you're saying about the crocodile thing, I think that one of the reasons that it, it's so complicated with the lions is on one hand we're talking about the threat of genetic extinction of a species. And I'm sensitive to that here as well, because we right now have, we're engaged in our own thing, right? We're engaged in the wolf debate right now that in some way mirrors the, the kind of language we're, we're hearing out of Africa, where you have a animal, you have a species that's absent from much of its range. Okay. So there used to be wolves, you know, Everywhere, you know, everywhere. But let's just say in the most recent past, you had wolves in New Mexico and Colorado and Arizona. They're, they're all over the place. Wolves here, California. And then now they're gone from much of that landscape. But there are some areas, like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, area around Glacier, in the U.S. that have what I would say is on the verge of too many wolves. And so people could look and they'd be like, well, how can there be too many if they're extinct across 90-some percent of their range in the lower 48? You know, I'd be like, well, yeah, it's very complicated. They're overabundant here and missing from there. And I see both sides of the debate because a lot of people who might come from my set of my understanding about wildlife, who like to hunt deer, like to hunt elk, like to hunt moose, do want to see the wolves all the way gone. And what they would point to is the effect that wolves have on uh livestock right people's way of making a living there's safety implications or not but some people say that there are safety implications from wolves being around and when i look at that i'm like okay i take all that but i don't think that that means we don't want wolves i think we do want wolves do we want like how many do we want you know i, I don't dis i do I, I agree that we want them around i just agree that there's a, a, a limit to how many we want and well, there was an agreement. There was an agreement when they reintroduced them that they, when, when the population got to a certain number, they would that. open. It's far the, past. They that. would open up hunting, and then they reneged on it. Yeah. So I don't think most people. It, it's just I, I'm like sensitive to the thing where 
as much as I was baffled by the the Cecil the Lion thing, I'm also a little bit like when there when there was the backlash to the backlash, and people said like, oh yeah, but you know people live in fear of lions and lions kill people. I don't know that, that like that doesn't really change anything for me. Like I don't think that that then means that oh you're right we should kill all the lions because they kill people. Oh, I tweeted the wrong link. Was it a new link? Oh, it's a different link every time? What? The, the Twitter or the YouTube link is youtube.com slash C slash powerful JRE slash live. <clears throat> you must have copy and pasted okay. uh, yesterday's. All right. That's I'll tweet that right now. Oh, Jesus Christ, Jamie. What was different about yesterday's? I don't know. If you copied it from the same place it was at yesterday, it okay. changes. All right. Okay. Thing. I'm sorry. Keep going, Steve. I lost my train of thought. Um, wolves, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You want to keep wolves alive. Oh, that. The argument that like, oh, yeah, man, it's okay to wipe something out because they hurt people. Um, I don't really buy into that either. You don't? No. I think that striving for with, with wildlife issues i think striving for a happy medium where you can have many different stakeholders at the table talking about it is more constructive and so i think as well with with the cecil the lion deal i just think it really like clouded and confused tons of that shit here in the u.s and made it harder for people to imagine um the role of what i would call management wildlife management game management you know, because it's not like this. We no longer live in this Eden environment where you can you can act somehow like the hand of man is not at play. I mean, we've we've cooked that world. Well, isn't it the issue that a lot of people have a big part of it is this this term trophy hunting? Yeah, like trophy hunting is deemed to be evil, and then people have respect for people that hunt. If you hunt for your food. I, you know, I can appreciate that. But what I don't like is this idea of trophy hunting. I mean, that is a, that's a giant issue with people. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a semantics issue in some way I see it as. And this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about in recent years is, uh, there's, there's what trophy hunting means to someone who's unfamiliar with hunting. When they hear the term trophy hunting, I think what they're, what they see in their mind they see the wanton slaughter of an animal just in order to take a piece of the animal its head or its hide and have it as a, as a bragging rights thing mm-hmm. that it's like this like callous slaughter of animals to to take part of it and take possession of part of it and use it as an emblem or to prove your manhood right like that's what they're seeing it's so pervasive now, that that meaning of the word, that I think that it might almost be time for people who do engage in trophy hunting to think about a new term. If I go out and, and, and I hunt and get something, I do retain parts of the animal. That might be that, that would be a trophy the same way you have that skull right there 
in that skull right there. Right. But it was a portion of, of what you retained. But you eat the animals. Yeah. So I think the difference between that and a lion is you're not eating a lion. And I think that freaks people out, this idea yeah. of just killing something just for its head, to stuff it and put it on the wall when it's not something that you're going to eat. I think it freaked, yeah. I think it freaked people out that the guy didn't eat it. I would, I, he should have eaten the damn lion, I think. You should have eaten it. He should have eaten it or found someone who wanted to eat it. And, and apparently he shouldn't have been a dentist because people love that that guy was a dentist. Why? I don't understand why. There's no other occupation where he would have became the dentist. If he was a welder. The welder that killed the lion? Yeah. It would just be that he was the guy with a name. Well, it's a public practice. That's a big yeah, part of I'm it. Saying there's a target people, there. No, it's like there's a thing about people Dentists? just don't want. There's something people don't like about dentists. Or somehow <laughs> that it said something to people that he was a dentist. I don't fully understand it. People loved pointing out that that man was a dentist. Somehow it just made it seem just really egregious. Well, one of those guys, it's like one of the big uh, game hunters that um, he's got a super, he's got like the super slam and the grand slam. And he's always on that Tom Miranda show. He's a, a famous surgeon. Him. No, he's a surgeon. It's like one of the more famous guys that's uh, involved in uh, the world of uh, bow hunting. Yeah. He's killed everything that walks with a bow. Yeah, they got, they might, it might be that they have, you know, they have the disposable income and a flexible schedule in order to do that sort of hunting. Maybe. Brian Callen's dentist is apparently some crazy big game hunter. No, all right. Maybe it's a common thing amongst dentists. But, yeah, I think if that guy, there's a, there's a handful of things that, that I think could have gone differently. If they had eaten that damn lion... Yeah, but you wouldn't go kill I'd a lion. lion. To, yeah, without would a doubt, you? I'd eat that lion. What do you think it would taste like? Shit. No, I think, think, so. think it tastes like whatever. Even if I had to take the whole, I'd take the whole thing and grind it up and make pepperoni sticks out of it. <laughs> Dude, I'd walk around. I'd come and do a party and be like, "Hey, man, I brought you thirty pepperoni sticks, bro." <laughs> I, I feel like he should have. Well, you ate a coyote on your show. Yeah. If he had known, I think that he, if he had known what it was going to wind up. He would have never shot it. That's what he said. If he had known it, he said it. I think he said if he had known it had a name, he wouldn't have shot it. Yeah. Well, the, the craziest thing was that I don't know the what that brother, means, though. I don't know what that means. Do you know the brother Jericho? He had a, the, Cecil had a brother named Jericho, and they said that Jericho was now going to take care of Cecil's young. Bullshit, first of all. Like, that's not real. And second of all, they thought Jericho had gotten killed. Because another lion had gotten killed, and they attributed it, they, they, they thought it was Jericho. And then they found out, well, great relief, the lion that was killed was not Jericho. It was just some no-name bitch-ass no lion that nobody cared trash about. Trash lion. It's, but it's the idea of giving a lion a name, like your dog. Yeah. It's not like some wild animal. All of a sudden, it's a pet. It's a pet that's in a park. And that's how a lot of people that don't go to Africa don't have anything invested in keeping the people around there safe or any. They, they, they have this idea that it's like the Lion King. And there's some evil hunter is going to go over there and steal, decapitate it, like the, the language that they use. First of all, they said he shot it with a crossbow. I saw that in like reputable newspapers. Yeah. Like he didn't use a crossbow. That's not true. Decapitated it. Well, yeah, that's what you do. If you want to take the hide, you have to cut the head off the rest of the body. It, man, it's, it's like such a – that issue is such a black hole. 
But I think that the people, I mean, it just like has this way, and it was kind of one of the ways it was most upsetting to me when it was going on. Thankfully, I was gone for a lot of it. But uh, it just had this way of like acting like a black hole, or like we envision a black hole being where it just sucks everything mm-hmm. around it into yeah. this thing, where it became like the dominant discussion about hunting. And I think that one of the most telling things about it is the people who seemed to be most upset by it were the people who had the least nuanced understanding of wildlife management, wildlife politics, and wildlife in general. And just the least understanding of what it means to eat meat in the first place. I looked at all these people that were protesting in front of his his dental practice. I'm like, you can't tell me you fuckers are vegetarians. You're big, fat, sloppy faces. This is These are not vegans. Yeah. These are not healthy people. I mean, this is not people that are eating a bunch of salads. These are people that probably got burgers on the way to putting those fucking signs up. I had a FBI. I had One time I had to have the FBI look into a guy who was messing me a little bit. And this agent came over to my house. And um, he was he's like, I can tell you that guy's not a vegan. <laughs> Or he's not a vegetarian. <laughs> he said the guy, you're talking about how the guy had just ordered a pepperoni pizza. <laughs> Which in my mind, I'm like, dude, then why do you have such a problem with me? Yeah. What the hell do you think that is? Because it's a target. You're a target. It's, it, people aren't looking at things rationally. I think they're finding green lights. Like, there's a green light. I'm frustrated by my life. I don't like my job. I don't like my social position. I don't like my, my whole the whole life that I've carved out for myself and I find green lights and I see those green lights and I can just point my anger in that direction instead of focusing it inwardly instead of looking at what aspects of my life that I should change maybe I'd have a more harmonious existence maybe I'd be happier maybe I'd be more fulfilled nope they just find someone like this fucking guy what are you fucking you're a hunter you get little dick you get your little dick you're gonna fix it with a rifle there's like these cliches that they yeah. always throw about and then they'll go eat a pepperoni pizza it's like oh my god do you know what's involved in making pepperoni do you, you if you ever gone to a slaughterhouse do you know what a what what existence these animals have before they get snuffed out it's a horrific existence. The existence of a wild animal is infinitely better. And the distance between or the time between the wild animal, even knowing that you're alive and being dead, is like that. Yeah, like, it can be. Typically can is. Be. Yeah. The difference between that and an animal that lives in captivity and gets turned into sausage or pepperoni or whatever the fuck it is, that's horrific. And the idea that someone who buys cat food, someone who buys chicken cat food, can get mad at someone who goes out and hunts a grouse or hunts a duck. It's madness. It's just madness. I wrote this thing about the hierarchy of, uh, of dead animals on social media, and I showed what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. And I'm like, cut up fish. Nobody really gives a fuck. You could show a dead fish, and it's a little sketchier, like, but you could show a steak that you've cooked. Very few people get upset. Yeah, but if you show an actual animal that's dead, people get really upset. Why do people get pissed about fur, but they don't get pissed about leather couches? It's a good point. Just someone scraped all the fur off. Exactly. As soon as you scrape the fur <laughs> off, people are like, "That's awesome, man! I'll buy a pair of shoes and I'll take that in a jacket as well." Can I get a belt? If you leave the hair on it, they fu- they just do not like it. Well, because we're mammals, it's really disturbing to them to leave the hair on it. They but much they- prefer you to take that stuff and throw it in the trash, yeah. and then use it as leather. But if it doesn't have hair, like a snakeskin belt, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Another thing that really bummed me out um, about our, you know, our, our dentist friend is that when I'm talking about hunting, one of the things I'd like to try to promote or try to explain is in a term I use a lot is trying to form a context with the land where you hunt and establishing a context with, with the animals you hunt, meaning that you understand your place in the world and you understand the world that you're walking into. Have you, have you heard of the writer Aldo Leopold who wrote Sand County Almanac? Yeah, I've heard his name. Okay. I'm he, never he was, not he, familiar with his work. He was writing in the 40s, and he was he, he was kind of the, the, the – he's like the grandpappy of hunter conservationists. I recently had occasion to reread his book because I went to um, – uh, I, I gave a talk at the University of Wisconsin. It was sponsored in part by the Aldo Leopold Foundation. So I reread Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac, and he was a hunter in the 40s, and um, relative to the forties, we live in the good old days. Um, we have phenomenal, phenomenal hunting and fishing here in this country. Um, in the forties, it sucked. Okay. In the thirties, it really sucked. Um, there was, you know, very few hunting seasons for anything. Most things were just gone. Habitat destruction was, you know, off the charts. Uh, you couldn't, you could legally hunt turkeys almost nowhere. Waterfowl was just about wiped out. Deer were just about wiped out. So now, like, if, if Aldo Leopold could be alive now, he'd see a lot that would make him very, very happy um, because we've done such a good job on this continent with wildlife management. But in this book, he pushes this idea. He, he's talking about hunting, but he's using the metaphor of a, of a, of a forester, okay, because he, he had been trained in forestry and worked in forestry. And he talked about how a forester, or you might say a hunter, um, goes out on the land and and with each stroke of his axe is writing his signature on the land with each swing of an axe. And and when I say he's talking about hunting, because he's kind of talking about this in the conversation with hunting, meaning when you go out on the land, you are like writing your signature out there. You know, you're, you're building a legacy. You're, you're making decisions and and having implications for the landscape, impacting it. What it seemed to be with that guy, I think one of the things that upset me about that guy and that might have upset other people about that guy that shot the lion was that he seemed to claim, um, he, he, he seemed to be claiming in some way that he just had no idea. Didn't know where he was. Didn't know what was up with the lion. Didn't know the lion had a collar. And be like, I just didn't know, you know. I think that in some ways, obviously, you're in another country. It's hard to follow what's going on. You rely on other people's judgment. But in some ways, I think it was upsetting to people that he wasn't doing like, he wasn't following that thing that Leopold set out about writing your signature on the land because it was sort of like he just had no idea where he was, what he was doing. And I think that when you hunt, you do have an obligation to understand your role and your place. Okay, and understand the context that you're working in. What are the limits and the needs of the resource you're trying to exploit? Can the resource withstand exploitation? Are you generally behaving as a force that's ultimately for 
or ultimately against wildlife. Like you have an obligation to answer all these questions. You can go in a situation like that and rely on the judgment of someone else, but that judgment can get really confused, I think, when money enters the picture, you know. But the money thing's funny, too, because people were very upset. I was joking earlier about them being him, them. I was joking about the dentist thing. It was just funny that how often it was pointed out, his occupation was pointed out. But what I'm not joking about is people were very, very upset about the amount of money that traded hands, which puzzled me because the old narrative from a century ago was that people of European descent go into Africa and take resources and pay for nothing. That we go there and just rob the place of its resources and we take what we want and we leave and we don't pay a dime for it. That was upsetting and is upsetting to me. Now it's like he's being criticized for paying too much for a resource. It's like, and he paid, or like the guy, he paid 350000 for a rhino. Would it be better to you if he paid $5? It would seem to me that him having expressed the value of the animal in some way is almost a compliment to the pursuit rather than just going in there and robbing what you want and never paying for anything. That makes sense, but I think a lot of people have an idea, a real problem with the idea of putting a value on life at all. Like saying that if it's $350,000, you can go kill an endangered animal. Instead of, the real issue is, they that animal was killing, other, we were talking about the rhino. Yeah. The endangered no, I'm black conflating. rhino. I'm, I'm doing a Brian Williams, I'm conflating yeah. the... They had a real problem with that rhino. They had a real problem with these older, non-viable rhinos because they were killing young rhinos. They kill, This rhino had killed a female, and in the the NPR piece, the uh, excuse me, the um, radio, radio lab, lab piece, they actually found the dead bodies of this female and a male that this rhino had killed. Like they, he took them to these spots. The guy who's the professional hunter. So, you know, in Africa, they have these things called professional hunters where you would think call them a guide in America. But they took them to the spot where this, the bones were of this female. I mean, this, this rhino really fucked this young female to death. Like he kept mounting her and fucking her and, and, and horning her, you know, hitting her with, with his horns yeah. and wound up killing her and killed a male who had, you know, gotten in the area and wanted to breed with the female, too. So he had killed two other rhinos. They had targeted him anyway because he was dangerous to the population because he was killing breeding males. The money that had come in from that $350,000 that that guy gave was going to stop poaching, was going to protect the environment that this animal lived in, was going to protect habitat. So the, the, the argument is real. It's real weird because on one hand, it does seem strange that we're talking about value for life, yeah. like that this life would be valuable. But on another hand, the real value is like you've got to kill this thing anyway because it's a non-breeding male. Either kill it or you have to capture it and take it somewhere and make it live in a cage. But if you kill it, this guy's willing to pay you $350,000. And he was saying that that was undervalued and that if there wasn't so much bad press, they would have probably been over half a million. Yeah. If, a, if they had had a park ranger go out or some kind of land manager go out and shoot it and act like, you know, just something that had to be done, I, you know, no, the guy, there would be no protest. The guy would have been applauded. But they would lose all the money. 
and all that no, money that would go to wildlife, the, 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 to uh, preservation of the land and protecting of the habitat, all that money would be gone. Protecting against poaching. So it's, it's one of those things in life that it's, it's, it's not clean. No, I was reading this morning uh, this article in The New Yorker by Adam Gopnik. He was writing about um, – he was actually writing a piece about books about the Holocaust. But in there he had this line that, that stuck with me, or at least it stuck with me for the last few hours, where he said that um, – something to, to the effect of the only way to simplify history is to make it complex. You know, it's like anytime any real explanation of something, particularly with wildlife – you don't get any real aha moments until you get into the deep complexity surrounding the issue. I think that's how we can sit here and uh, all these whatever number of months after that, and I can sit here and still hold in my hand or hold them in my hand simultaneously a disdain for this guy and, and, and what he stood for. We can talk about the line, like some kind of disdain for it. Like something about it, I just like it's a visceral reaction about some of the things I know about what went on and what might have been in people's mind, and at the same time, disdain for the general public for feeling the disdain that they felt. It's like I just see it as such a big thing that I haven't really made that much sense out of it. And when I, whenever I get that conflicted about an issue, I start to feel like I'm getting somewhere. That's fascinating. You know, why do you feel like you're getting somewhere when you get conflicted? Because then I realize that I'm probably seeing it from the necessary number of angles. Well, it is one of those things where there are a bunch of different angles to look at it. And it is complex because this guy, whether or not the Zimbabwe government cleared him of any wrongdoing, which they did, he still tampered with the collar, which is illegal. He still was a poacher. He had been convicted of poaching already. He had uh, killed a bear 40 miles outside the area that he claimed yeah. to kill it, tried to bribe the people that he was with to claim that he killed it in an illegal area. So this guy was already unethical. So he was, he was a perfect guy to pin all this on. Yeah. But you want to say, like, okay, yeah, this guy was an asshole doing some asshole stuff. Right. But does that mean that we're not going to manage large predators? But and I want to be do, like, do you know? we have to manage lions? I mean, is this a critical issue like it is with wolves? Like you're talking about the wolf population getting out of control, and this is from a, bi- a biological wildlife management standpoint. Like the the guys who are wildlife biologists gave a number that they think a wolf population should reach before it should start being managed. That number's been far exceeded. And when that number was exceeded, that's when all the blowback came back, where they were saying, no, 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 we, we've changed our mind. We yeah. don't want to open up a hunting season. And that became a real issue because then the elk population dropped radically. Then the deer population dropped radically. And then there was all these positive spins on it. Like, did you, uh, uh, there was this one guy who, um, there's another radio, uh, radio lab. Oh, the guy that Ted you talked on the guy that like the, how wolves saved the rivers. The river. and, yeah, uh, that guy's uh, fascinating. Because that guy's, I, I saw that piece and I thought, well, maybe this guy is making some interesting points until I li- listened to this TED uh, podcast about him recently where he's talking about reintroducing wolves or w- reintroducing lions and even hippos to England. 
because he thinks that at one point in time, and it, you know, they found in London, they found like ancient bones of lions, and he thinks bringing megafauna to areas of the UK would be beneficial. There's areas of the UK, you know, millions of hectares. Yeah. Hecta- how do you say it? Hectares? Hectares. Hectares that are not being used and utilized, and they could turn into a wildlife park with fucking lions. And this is all the result of a, a self-admitted midlife crisis this guy had. So he got interested in the concept of rewilding. I'm, inter- I'm interested in the concept of rewilding, and I'm interested in the concept of rewilding in that if you can correct mistakes, if, if you can correct extirpations, or let's say scientifically you had the ability to correct extinctions, but just you, you can't, so we'll not talk about that for right now. If you could correct expert, extirpations, like regional extinctions of animals that were brought on by human causes, then I think we have a moral obligation to remedy those mistakes. Elk, okay, the American elk, only occupies 10% of its native range. Elk live in 10% of, of the land in the U.S. that they lived in at the time of European contact. No one talks about elk being endangered or near extinction, even though they're absent from 90% of their range. Why is that? Because we, because there are many areas where they abound. So we've come able to go like, yes, elk are missing from areas, and there's a number of groups Many state agencies, most notably the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, work to, where plausible, bring elk back to areas in the east that used to have them that no longer do. In my lifetime, elk have come back to Michigan, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and on and on and on through reintroduction efforts. Okay, so we're working to repopulate elk. The biggest piece of resistance you get on repopulating elk is public approval. People don't want to be inconvenienced by big-ass animals that they're going to hit with their cars, and they don't want to be inconvenienced by animals that eat crops. So that's the resistance. The resistance is that it's just that we don't have the technology for it. It's just that we got to get public approval. So we're trying to bring them back. Meanwhile, we have hunting seasons for elk all over the place, right? I mean, just down the line, you got elk seasons, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, Idaho, California, Nevada, while they're gone from other places. You know, why is it that we can't extend the same logic to the wolf and say, yeah, the wolf's absent from much of its range and much of it in some of its range, it's thriving. We're going to manage the areas that are thriving and we're going to work toward bringing wolves back to the areas where they're not the same way that Hunters, by and large, not even by and large, solely, hunters are responsible for bringing elk back all over the place. But I think the way the general public looks at things is very different from the way that you're looking at things. You're, you're looking at these animals as a renewable resource. The general public looks at them as magical creatures that live in the forest that we need to bring back because we made them extinct because we're greedy and vicious. And fun, yeah, we're, we're fundamentally yeah. flawed. And on top of that, we're talking about animals you eat versus elk versus animals you don't eat, wolves. Why do you want to kill these wolves? You must be a cruel person who wants to go out and kill something that looks like a dog. Because to people, wolves are these magical creatures. You're, oh, you hear it. Whoa, I hear a wolf. Wow, that's cool. And it is cool to hear a wolf. Yeah, but I like wolves more than those people do. Do you think so? Yeah. Why do you think you like them more? 
I just have more familiarity with them. I go to more places where they might be found. I like spend more time looking through my binoculars trying to find them. I just am more interested in them. I like them more. It means more to me. Not every one of them, but your average guy that's never even laid eyes on one, I have more of an appreciation for the animal than they do. I'm, I'm sorry. That sounds like a bold, offensive statement, but I just do. I would back you up on that. I think you do. But I think... I to- like grizzly bears a whole bunch. A whole bunch. I've been hunting for grizzly bears a lot. Never shot a grizzly bear. I've never found the one I want to get, and I will get one in my life. Are you going to turn into pepperoni sticks? No. No, I'm going to eat it straight up. Really? When I do get one. I just Why got back that? from spending 12 days looking for grizzly bears. Why would you decide to eat it straight up and not turn into pepperoni sticks? Because isn't it going to taste like shit? No, because I hunt them in the interior. The areas where I go to look, you know, anytime I've gone out with the intention of getting a grizzly bear, um, I go to areas where they don't have access to fish. Purposely? Yeah. So that you can get a big one. I want a big one that, that you can I eat. Want, I want a mature male. Preferably one who tomorrow will die of old age, and I want him to not be eating a lot of fit, dead fish. So that you can eat them. Yep. Yeah. Cam Haynes, I showed you the pictures of the two grizzlies that he shot. He's eating them. He's yeah. chewing his way through them. And I go, how do they taste? He's like, they're fucking awful. Yeah. He goes, I just eat them. And I'm like, man, see, I'm not interested in that. Um, Unless it was for a legitimate wildlife conservation reason, and I was going to eat it. I don't think I would be interested in hunting something like that. I mean, I, even if it was, it's just, if I'm going to spend my time hunting something, I want to eat, eat it. 100%. Yeah. That's the thing that, it, that's that's my connection to hunting. Well, I grew up, I've, I've told you about this a handful of times, I feel like, but I'll say it again. Like, I grew up always hunting since before I can remember. But for a long time, I got interested in trapping. And that's what I was going to do for a living, is I was going to be a fur trapper. I, I caught my first muskrat. I was 10 years old, and I trapped till I was 22, so I trapped for 12 years. And the latter part of that, I was trying to do it where I was going to be a professional trapper, all right? I eventually quit trapping because fur markets got so low um, and moved away from home, got more serious about college, and started just feeding our me and friends, my brothers. By that point in time, we were feeding ourselves on wild game, buying no protein besides what we hunted for. Um. And at that point was when I really like sort of found my my place in the natural world. You know, that was like the relationship with animals and the relationship with the natural world and the relationship with hunting that really spoke to me and made me feel very good about my decisions, very good about my lifestyle. And and I've lived that lifestyle now, you know, for twenty some odd years. Um But I did at a time, yeah, I did trap. You know, and I would trap in order to sell the hides. So when I now talk about why I like to hunt and that I don't want to hunt for something I'm not going to eat, because that's just that that's what I like to hunt for. I think that some hunters will look at that and they act like you're uh, being divisive, you know, that you're being that you have this holier than thou attitude. You're somehow condemning other practices. I'm just talking about what I like my approach, what I like to do. You know, what to me is the, the what to me is the value of an animal. I think in many, many cases, when it comes to predator management, I think there are many cases where you're you're gonna have harvests of predators that are just not gonna it's not gonna be a food driven harvest. 
You know, it's just not. We're looking right now, like, in the same areas that were in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem around Glacier National Park. You're looking at coming up on a thing where the same thing that happened with wolves is going to probably have to happen with grizzly bears. They're, in many of these areas, they're getting way above objective, okay? It's starting to have negative implications for prey animals. It's having negative implications for people who use the land. These bears have, they're just not afraid of anything, you know, you go up in Alaska where grizzlies get hunted, you can generally get upwind of the thing, let it get a smell of you. It's going to take off, oftentimes, typically the case. In these areas, they're drawn to the smell of humans. No one can touch them. They have ESA protection. You know, we had drawn out decades ago what recovery would look like. We've far surpassed what recovery looks like. It's going to happen. It's going to be ugly. But they're going to delist bears. They're going to put. They're going to delist grizzly bears. They're going to put grizzly bears under state management. It's, it's inevitable. They're going to put them under state management in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. And people are going to be killing grizzly bears. Some some limited amount, and there probably and there probably is not going to be a meat salvage requirement on those bears. Well, what Am I going to now condemn inevitable? that hunt? No way. No. Well, you wouldn't because you understand it and you know about it and you understand the importance of it. But to the average person. The average person has a very cursory knowledge, like very, very peripheral when it comes to wildlife management. They don't even consider it. Yeah. They think of trophy hunting as just being some evil person who wants to kill things, again, to make their dick hard, right? That's like, what, isn't that what Jimmy Kimmel said on TV when he started crying, when he started talking about Cecil? No, he cried. I don't know. I heard yeah. about that. He cried, and he, st- he did the whole cliche. <laughs> we talked about, is that what you need to get your dick hard? I just kind of like that guy, too, man, a little uh, bit. Well, I do, too. I like him a lot, but I just don't think he understands. I don't think he understands. I don't think he educates himself about it. I think he works 16 hours a day on a show, and I think he has very little knowledge about what it takes to manage wildlife. Now, this is coming from someone who doesn't agree with the lion hunting, that yeah. guy. Like, I don't think the lion populations are low. I mean, or high, rather. I, mean, I don't think it's anything where you, you have to manage. I mean, I don't think that's the, the issue that they're having in Zimbabwe. I think this is just a, a, it's a, a way that they make money. Yeah. And there, you can look at it that way, like it's sustainable. And if it is sustainable and these people use it to, to make money and they, they benefit from the resource of people coming over there and hunting them, I guess you could see a positive benefit of it. You know, did you ever see the Louis Thoreau documentary on those hunting camps, the high fence hunting camps in South Africa? No. It's pretty good. It's, it's, I should say it's you really good. You told me it's about really it, good. and it's I really failed good. to ever watch it. Now I'm going to redo it. It's I'm going to rewrite it down in my notes. It's excellent. But you one gave of me the, a notepad. I'm going to write it on my notepad. All right. <laughs> one of the craziest parts of it was the lions. They had this fenced-in area, and it's a small area where they have these lions, and they're throwing these cows literally over the fence. They're in the back of a truck. And they have this high fence, and these lions are staring at them with these fucking ruthless killer eyes. I mean, they are right there. There's two sets of fences in case you know. There's like uh, in case one of them fails, there's another fence behind it. And they chuck these lions, this cow, this calf. They throw it over the top like fucking Jurassic Park, and they just tear this thing apart. And they're looking at and well. Eventually, and then meanwhile, some guy goes and acts mm-hmm. like he's hunting the lion. Exactly. They're gonna yeah. let one of those loose. They let them out of the cage, and lions are used to their territory, right? So when they let them out of the cage, the lions are going to get out of that cage, and they're going to go, where the fuck am I? I'm just going to sit down here and try to figure out where the hell they are, right? So they're going to sit down, and then they send this hunter out, and the hunter finds the lion, shoots it, poses, does the whole uh, picture with it. And, you know, that guy Pigman did that. They had a, a whole yeah. episode. 
and he's he's going, and you can tell these lions have just been released. But he doesn't. Does he show what he was doing? Does not. Does Why? Not That's the thing I don't that understand about high fence. High fence. This thing I don't understand about guys like to hunt high fence. Why do they? Why do they love the trappings of hunting, the appearance of hunting, mm-hmm. the methods of hunting, the tools of hunting, the clothes of hunting, the photographs that come from hunting? Why do they like that so much, but they just don't like hunting, the doing of? Is that what it is, or do they want guaranteed success, and do they want to hide the fact that it's in a high-fence environment because they're doing it on television, and don't things like the Outdoor Channel, don't they have rules? Yeah. They have rules, like you can't show high fences. You can't show fences on television, whether or not but you hunt But if you could show, do you feel like that they would show it? Because nope. I feel like people are often doing non-fair chase hunts, mm-hmm. but masquerading yes. that it was a fair chase hunt. If you like to do hunts that aren't fair chase, if you like doing it, why do you, why do they have such a hard time just saying that's what I like to do? Well, Ted I, Nugent I spend an, does. I spend an enormous amount of time explaining why I like to do what I do. You know? Mm-hmm. Why don't I would love for one of them to explain to me what they like about it instead of doing it and acting like they did something different. Well, the per, part of it is the network themselves. Right, the outdoor channel and the sportsman's channel—they don't allow you to show high fences. That's a part of their bylines, right? I don't know if they say don't show high fences. They might not want. This the, is coming from Ben O'Brien. Yeah, so they might. I don't. They might. I, I can't say if they say don't show it or if they're saying don't do it. I think they say don't show it. Don't show it. Don't show it because I, I Ted Nugent that. is on that program, right? He's on those networks, yeah. right? He's got a huge show on that network. He hunts in his fucking yard. I mean, he's not he's not on a big piece of property. I think he's less than 300 acres or maybe 300 acres. That's not that much. And in that 300 acres, it's all high fence. He's got African animals. He's got all kinds of shit in there, whitetails, pigs, all in this one area. And he hunts high fence almost exclusively. And when he's hunting on, you know, it says like Spirit Wild Ranch. Yeah. That's his yard. I mean, he's essentially hunting his pets. If you really want to look at it that way, he yeah. leaves his house, goes, sits in his favorite tree stand, probably got a bunch of them all over his property. But I don't, I don't, think, in, I don't think in and of itself, I don't feel there's anything wrong with that because my brother raises sheep. Right. And when he goes out to get the sheep, he goes out with a 22. He's got irrigated pasture. He runs lambs. When he goes out to get a lamb, he gives a lot of it away, eats some of it for himself, shoots a lamb with a 22. However... He doesn't dress it up like he's hunting the lambs out on his pasture. Like it's a wild animal that he's got to sneak up on. No, I mean he right. he doesn't like put he doesn't like put a picture of him in his twenty two on in a dead lamb on Facebook. He's like, you know what I mean? He's a hunter. He's a right. very avid hunter, and never right. once in his life. I wish he was here because I'd like to ask him this question. Never once in his life has he confused the act of farming organic sheep with the act of hunting wild elk yeah it's not confusing to him no but is it confusing when you say when like you what you, how did you, did you have a good hunting year he'd right. be like so far he got an elk with his bow a national forest land he got an antelope with his bow on yeah, blm land his yard. and he would never be like oh and i got 10 lambs <laughs> in my yard yeah, it's, it's just like it's I don't get different. it. It's just right. so weird to me that 
I feel like we talked about this with Doug Dern too. Doug Dern has to go out now and then and kill cattle on his farm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like get like gussied up in camo and <laughs> get like a bunch of pink <laughs> accents and like put pink accents all over his gun and go out. Pink and accents? Sh- He's not a girl. And go out and like shoot the cows on his property. Right. Yeah. He'd be like, no, I went and shot my cow. Right. He wouldn't make a TV show where he's like acting like he's hunting his cows. But his fence is only, you know, 20 yards, whereas Ted Nugent's fence is 300 acres. Yeah, I can't really speak to it because I'd, I'd have to go see it. Right. Well, no, I haven't he, seen you it. You know, you only see it on the show. You see him, he takes around one of those little ATV vehicles, you know, those little things, drives around on his beautiful piece of property. It's kind of a cool way to acquire your meat. You know, if you have all these animals, you're 100% guaranteed there's animals there. Yeah. You know, it's not like there's a big search, you know, where you're like, fuck, yeah, let's uh, let's keep hiking, you know? But it's so weird, because if my brother all of a sudden told me, the one who raises sheep, and, and I'll explain, like he, I want to explain the sheep thing a little bit better. This might be interesting to your viewer, your listeners. He has pack llamas, okay? He uses llamas, he like hunts backcountry for elk, right? For, hunts very remote areas, and elk are big, and he hunts by himself. So he keeps llamas to carry his elk meat. So he'll go in the mountains with his bow, and he'll go in there for a long time sometimes. And when he kills an elk, he can put the, a whole bull on three llamas and pack the elk out of the mountains. He hunts some areas where he's nine miles from a trailhead. And he did that because he fucked his back up carrying it on himself, right? Carrying elk meat. Yeah. That's when he first got motivated to buy llamas. Now, because he has llamas, he bought irrigated pasture to keep the llamas on. It's flood irrigated. But he's gone a lot. So to incentivize his buddies to come over and check on his llamas and make sure everything's cool, he lets them run sheep with the llamas. So they come over to watch to check on their sheep, thereby checking on his llamas. Now, if he told me one day, if all of a sudden he said, hey, man, let's get all done up in our camo, and I'm going to put a blind out, I'm going to put a blind out with the sheep, and let's sit in there and shoot arrows at the sheep, right? I would just think it was weird. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like, I think there's like moral stuff, right? We have things in our lives that, that... are just like moral obligations. I feel like mm-hmm. you have like a moral obligation to take care of your children. I think if you're not taking care of your children, I think you're like, that's an immoral move. For my brother to go out and like decide that he wanted to shoot his bow at the sheep on, in his pasture would just strike me as just strange. Yeah, it is definitely strange. But is it strange to stock a pond with fish? No. You have a small pond. No, in fact, in fact, <laughs> his neighbor just dug a big fish pond. Right, but isn't that strange? Because it's, it's the hierarchy. Oh, the hierarchy of animals. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's, I, I can't explain it. You one time posed something to me that still troubles me now. We are talking about baiting. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, we baited deer. I now realize that we would have done a hell of a lot better deer hunting had we not gotten involved in that. But that was just how, when I was a kid... We'd go to this town, Grant, Michigan. They raised a lot of carrots in Grant, Michigan, and you could buy. They'd size the carrots and sort the carrots, and you could fill the back of a pickup truck. It seems outlandish now. I'm 40 years old, and this was when I was 12. You could fill, they would fill your truck with carrots for $5. Wow. I mean, the bed of a pickup. That's amazing. Yeah. 
the bed of a pickup would be full of carrots for five bucks. How the fuck did carrot farmers make any money? I, I, I never understood it. There was a time <laughs> when they were harvesting, you'd go down there and they would just, you'd pull up under a grain hopper type thing and it'd fill your truck with carrots. All of a sudden I want a carrot. We'd sit in the back, dude. <laughs> We'd sit in the back eating carrots, man. You'd find carrots like all that looked like, you could find carrots that looked like humans. You could find carrots with genitalia. I mean, just <laughs> carrots are crazy. I, like I yeah. have carrots in my garden now and you pull up the carrots, you, always, you, you expect that you're going to pull up a thing that looks like a carrot from the store. Right. One in ten. Yeah. One in ten. Most of them are like three-legged carrots. So they had it down a little better than I do, and they had better carrots. But anyway, we'd get all these rejected carrots. We'd have a snow shovel, and we would go out to areas we hunted, and we would put down a canvas tarp. I can picture the tarp right now. We'd lay down a canvas tarp, and you'd snow shovel carrots out of the back of the truck onto the tarp or into what's known as a Duluth pack, a big canvas leather strap backpack and we would hike either drag the carrots on the tarp if possible or load them in backpacks and hike them back into the intersections of deer trails typically where two big deer trails would come together and you'd dump the carrots out and then you do this a week before season and then you'd hunt you'd sit in your tree stand with your bow you're picking an area the deer frequent anyways you're picking like a like I said, usually typically like a confluence of a couple good deer trails or, pick, or an area where deer might stage up in the evening before going out into ag fields to feed. You know they kind of will mill around a little bit oftentimes before committing to a field at nighttime. You'd set them up in these areas. Um, the problem is as soon as you put down the carrots, you'd be creating problems for yourself because they would start to associate the carrots with hunters like they knew trouble was brewing your smell was around you got deer you know doe can be i mean they can get really old but let's just be realistic and you got all kinds of deer does around that are five six seven years old you accumulate a lot a lot of knowledge in that time so you put the carrots down you're kind of screwing yourself but you would get shots at young deer that would come in to hit, hit the carrots so i grew up hunting bait now i look at it and i go like man I would have learned a hell of a lot more about deer and a lot more about deer hunting early on if I hadn't gotten, if I hadn't been involved in that practice. I now look back, I'm like, man, did I miss a lot of chances to get educated about what deer need and how to actually find deer instead of trying to manipulate their movement patterns, you know? So now I don't hunt, like I don't hunt bait anymore. I'm not even kind of interested in hunting bait. And I was explaining this to you. This is a long-ass story. I was explaining this to you because you were like, well, why is it okay to use bait when you're fishing? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it is a weird. Why is it? It I is just, weird. I, I wish I could explain it. I don't know. It's more sporting in my mind to use, and I hate that word. No, I don't hate that word. It's more sporting in my mind to catch a fish with bait than it is to catch them in a seine, well, a beach seine. Don't you hate that? argument though that people say you're a real man why don't you go fucking fight that animal one-on-one why don't you what, you with a sniper rifle yeah you're sitting around with a rifle shooting that's it? silly why don't you go hit it with a rock why don't Cra- you use your bare hands crazy horse had a rifle did he mm-hmm. well he's an indian or i'm a, saying like for indigenous or whatever people have yeah i'm just saying like if someone was posing that argument right. to me i would point out how people that hunt for their food have always gravitated toward technology 
And if you look at our progression from rocks to hafted rocks mm-hmm. to adaladles to bow equipment to flintlocks to percussion cap to paper cartridge to rifling on down the line, I'm not doing anything that revolutionary by using what uh, an effective means. Well, it's kind of a new idea. It's a, it's, a, baiting? it's a new idea. Yeah, but it's not interesting to me. Right. I'm talking about interest. Like I like knowing <laughs> about animals. If right. I'm not interested in there. Let, let's take the area where I like to hunt bears. I hunt bears in a coastal area. Okay. And it's at a northern latitude. There's a lot of snow there, but because of maritime influences, you know, it, it's warm enough down around the water where the snow's melted off in the water. So when I go to hunt bears in the spring, ninety percent of the land mass is covered in snow and is of little use to a bear. Okay. When they come out of hibernation, they're going down to the waterfront because on the waterfront, they're going to find beach rye and some other grasses they like to eat. They're going to find blue mussels and they like to eat crabs under rocks and logs. Now, so I know about mussel beds and grass flats where bears are going to go to all the time. I can tell you when we go out at night, I can tell you, I'll be like, we'll see more than one, probably less than five. And I'll tell you, and I know where, and I know some muscle beds where some are going to show up. I like that. I don't like, I've never done a baited bear hunt. I have no desire to do a baited bear hunt. Is it, does that mean it's super hard to hunt bears where I hunt bears? I can't tell you that it's super hard to hunt bears there. Because once you learn the rhythms of the land, what they want, why they're coming there, what they're coming to get, it becomes easier and easier the more you understand bears and the more you understand why bears do what they do. But I like having that knowledge. Mm. But I can't say it's like super hard. It's not super hard. Once you know it, it's pretty easy. So when I say I don't want to go hunt bears over bait personally, I'm not saying, oh, because it's so easy. I'm just saying because it's just not of interest to me. It's like, it's not interesting to me personally as a hunter that bears will come to donuts if you put them out in the woods. It's not an interesting phenomenon. What's interesting to me is they like muscle beds. Like for whatever reason, I find that interesting. When I lived in Michigan, my brothers each drew a black bear tag in Michigan. You could live your whole life in Michigan, which has a lot of bears in the north, and never lay eyes on a bear because the landscape's flat, and it's thick. If you want to hunt a bear there, you're going to either have to use dogs or you're going to have to use bait because that's the way the landscape is. So when they drew bear tags, I helped them run baits. I helped them collect bait. We shot carp and all kinds of stuff and froze bait and trapped beavers and baited bears for them. It was the only way to do it. I had a blast doing it. But right now, no, it's just not interesting to me. Well, in Alberta, they have two places that they, they hunt bears. They hunt bears over bait in the spring, and then in the fall, they go to these uh, open fields where they find blueberries. Mm-hmm. And the open fields is rifle hunting most of the time. And then in the baits, they most of the time use archery. Yeah, because you can bring them in yeah. close and, and figure out what size they are. Exactly. Not kill, not kill sows with cubs. I understand it, man. Yeah. No, uh, but I understand what you're saying, too. It makes total sense because what you're doing 
is you're going to places where they would be no matter what, without human influence whatsoever. They would be there for those muscles. They'd be there for those grasses. And so you are you're experiencing the actual natural progression of them waking up from their hibernation and heading down to feed. You're just going where you know they will be. Yeah. And it's not, there's no donuts, there's no cookies, there's no bullshit, no fucking big blue jugs that are set out for them to paw at and try to get their oats out of. Yeah. There's something less cool about that. Like, uh, like, like elk hunting. When elk hunting in Colorado or over here in Tahone Ranch, when you're, you're out there, those animals would be there whether you existed or not. Yeah. They're, they're out doing elk yeah, type stuff. They're, they're out breeding and eating and you just you're just trying to find them locate them and then put a stock on one and get one that's a pure way of doing it for sure but then there's people that would argue you know like the the argument of uh well you're using a rifle how hard could it be you know and then there's other although also people would say well you know i prefer to hunt with a bow because it's more difficult like what you're talking about is more difficult but then there's also people that would say well if you hunt with a bow you have more of a chance of wounding an animal and not killing it yeah. and you should you should use a rifle i mean you're not going to make everybody happy no matter what you no, do no the difficult argument is it gets really circular and and hard to pin down because if you say you know i i don't I hunt with a compound bow because I like the because it's more it's harder than hunting with a rifle. Then you have to Watch go okay hunt with a well, recurve. Then by extension, hunt with a recurve. And if you're going to do that, you should hunt with a long bow. And then if you're going to do that, you should hunt with an atlatl, which is certainly more difficult than what a long. What the fuck's an atlatl? Like a, a throwing board with a dart. Oh Jesus! Yeah, it predated the predated the bow the bow's only like here on this continent they've you know the bow's only been around for people debate it but somewhere between four and six thousand years so you had ten thousand years of human history or more here where they were hunting with atlatls i bet they were skinny as fuck yeah guys hunting woolly mammoths they weren't hunting woolly mammoths with bows wow they're hunting with atlatls so that's that that thing where you put the spear on it and you know it's got like a cup yep. and then you exactly you put like a couple that. fingers in there or some kind of holding board and you fling a spear Are those, it, just, it makes it your right arm there, yeah Jamie, it's like a big ball it's just you. it makes it's an extension of your arm it makes your arm essentially longer How you know when you go long? you know those, when you go to people to a dog park and they're hucking tennis balls at that little yeah same thing it's like an atlatl principle oh right so yeah, there was for you know ten thousand years people hunted here with atlatls. How accurate are those things? Though? I've Not... seen guys get good, man. Really? Yeah, I've seen guys get good. How much distance can you get? Fifteen, twenty yards, tops, tops. Yeah, I'm sure some guy be like, oh, I did it, but yeah, guys that kill stuff with atlatls kill stuff with atlatls. So is that a, a, a thing that's going on right now? Like people are doing that? Like, is yeah, that a, but a the problem is there's that's why guys that hunt with atlatls will tend to hunt wild pigs or other things like that because most places you can't use them. Oh, okay. So you can do it with wild pigs because they're considered a nuisance animal. In some areas, you can use other means to kill them. But in most states, they don't. All states have somewhere they spell out legal method of take. It is. We looked into this once. I think that it like it, in Alaska. I think for the most part, like yeah, you could hunt caribou with an atlatl. I could be wrong. Don't know and go out and do it because of that. But I remember looking at the way it's worded, and I think you could hunt caribou with an atlatl. But states spell out legal method of take in exquisite detail for instance hunting waterfowl which is waterfowl is federally regulated and state regulation because they're migratory they move across state lines so the feds step in to try to make sure the states aren't taking more than their equal share of the resource now they'll spell out the diameter or bore 
of the shotgun you're allowed to use. You can't use an eight gauge, you know, and some, and, and then they'll spell out you can't use you can't use anything bigger than a ten, and you can't use anything smaller than or whatever, you know, four ten or something less than that, or not allowed to use a four ten. So they'll spell out in exquisite detail what you can and can't do for legal method to take. So a lot of what I'm saying about if you want to go back, 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 back in time to have things get more and more and more difficult, it's hypothetical. Because the guy that is doing, as far as weapon choice, the most difficult thing you can legally do for general big game hunting in the U.S. for a weapon choice would be that you'd hunt with a longbow. Because you're still legal. It's still a legal method to take for most archery seasons to hunt with a longbow. Um, so if you want to cripple yourself or handicap, I don't want to say cripple, if you want to handicap yourself equipment-wise, the guy who uses a longbow is going way back. Now, I recently looked at an ad where a guy is getting out of a helicopter in space-age dress with a longbow. <laughs> so we all, it's a hunting clothes ad, okay? So we all find our little ways of mental masturbation. <laughs> and this isn't just something that happened. This is like an image that they thought is cooler than hell. Yeah. They're like, it's so cool. It'll be the front of the catalog is climbing out of a helicopter with a longbow. So we occupy the – and in the U.S., for the most part, like in Alaska, for instance, you can't hunt with a helicopter. You can't use a helicopter to supply a hunting camp. You can't scout for animals from a helicopter. We decided it's just not fair to use – helicopters because you can land them anywhere you want and you can't hunt for the most part you can't hunt and fly on the same day just not fair but here's like a longbow and a chopper (laughs) so we all come up with our ways of 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 finding comfort yeah you know our ways of finding that right mix of challenge, not challenge. I heard a guy say, people have really struggled to define fair chase. And I heard someone recently, I don't think it's a new thing, but I heard it recently, where he was saying that in fair chase, the animal has a better than 50% chance of escape or something to that effect. My brother's a statistician. Um, he's an ecologist, but he does a, he, he specializes in like statistical modeling. And I asked him what he thought of a statement like that. And he couldn't even find the language to begin telling me how stupid that was. That it has a 50% chance of escape. Like, under what requirements? Right. Or like, like, I he, he, like it made his head like smoke come out of his ears <laughs> when he heard that. But what the guy's trying to get at is this idea that you have an un... That there's an unknown element. Right. There's an not element, guaranteed success. There's not guaranteed. When my brother goes out to shoot his sheep, it's 100%. he knows yeah. that it's time to shoot the sheep. Right. Now, this is the same guy that recently spent 21 days hunting elk with his bow on national forest land before he finally got a bull. And, and he's he a uses, very good elk hunter. He uses a recurve, though, right? No, no. Hunts with a compound bow. Which brother? Matt. So does Danny use a recurve? Or did he Matt, shoots a recurve, but did he Matt generally hunts back? with a rifle. Did Matt decide at one point in time he was going to use only a recurve? No, I don't Which think brother it, was the one that Danny, Danny is more and more interested in hunting with his recurve. He does hunt with his recurve, but he all I mean he, he just he he drew the same uh Copper River buffalo tag 
that I drew in 2004, and two days ago he got a buffalo up there and he shot it with it. He got it with his rifle. So did he go by himself for 21 days? My brother Matt. Yeah. yeah. Wow. In and it was a couple different trips added up to 21 days. So it was just trying to locate the right bull or trying to locate any bull? Just hunting, man, a bull. Yeah. But he hunts in a very – he hunts in an area where there's about – the, the herd – when we started hunting that area, this is in Yellowstone. It's kind of funny now looking back at the return to this whole wolf thing. It's like, you know, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, okay? The GYE, let's say, that the, the area surrounding Yellowstone and Wyoming and Montana. We started hunting that area in 97. Now it seems like this, like, you know, is prophetic the right word? Now it's like this watershed moment because it's right when wolves, right? It's right around the reintroduction of the wolf. Um, there's now less than half as many elk in that area is there were the time we started hunting it, but he's way more than twice as good at hunting them now. So how he's grown and developed as an elk hunter, he has a higher success rate now hunting half as many elk as we used to hunt. That's fascinating. So he's because balanced he, it he's out just, with his knowledge. Yeah. Cause he just learned it. He's one of the great, he's one of the best hunters that I know. And it's not because of any particular like thing. It's just the tenacity thing. He's tenacious. Well, speaking of tenacity, you that's one of your qualities as well. And one of the things that I found fucking unbelievably ridiculous about your show was when you made a, a decoy of a grouse. Yeah. <laughs> and you tried to figure out whether or not you could you, you, you had someone make a reed. I mean, a grouse, for people that don't know, is a very small bird. A blue grouse, though. Blue grouse. It's a big, small bird. Well, big. Like, what is it? Half pound? No. Is it even? No. no, I mean, a dove's almost a half pound. No, How not much quite. does it weigh? A few pounds. Oh, it does weigh a few pounds. A couple pounds. A couple pounds. Okay, so a football size? How big is it? Yeah, the body. But about I mean, but big. yeah. Okay, that's but a decent size. It's big. You know what it would be? If you plucked one out, it'd be like a not fat Cornish game hen. Okay. So yeah. a very small chicken. Like you, you, Have you seen my chickens? I got some really, some of them, we, we've got a couple really tiny chickens. Like yeah, they but they're like a like. sinewy, a blue grouse is a sinewy bird. Okay, you know what? That, they're they're not as heavy as a pheasant, let's say. Okay. They're not as heavy as a cock pheasant. But meanwhile, you spent fucking days trying to figure out how to more effectively hunt this one little thing. Yeah. I, I, I became obsessed with... I, like, I use that word with such hesitation, man. Obsessed? I became obs- yeah, it's but like... No, it's a good word. Because it, we used to... Fully concentrate upon. Yeah, so there's this bird... Um, called a blue grouse. Now, blue grouse used to be people used to know blue grouse as dusky grouse and sooty grouse, and it's the it's um. Then for a long time they lumped them together as blue grouse, and then in in a decade ago or sometime uh, maybe ninety seven or sometime around there. No, no, I'm sorry, two thousand seven. The Ornithological Society realized that there is a difference between the different species, the different types of blue grouse, and they re-split them, or they suggested that they be re-split into sooties and duskies. So you have dusky grouse or in the interior mountain ranges and sooty grouse from the coastal ranges. And there's a normal bird. People call them fool's hens, and they call them, like, dumb birds and all this kind of stuff because they don't, when they think of the things that they're afraid of, they're just not afraid of people. They don't have much exposure to people. They live in places where most people don't go. Um, so when a predator approaches, when a human approaches, what they typically want to do is just jump into a tree. They want to get off the ground so they can't get nabbed 
by a bobcat or a fox or a coyote, and they get under some limbs in a tree so that they, so that the avian predators can't smack them. And then people walk up, and there's this bird sitting in the tree, and they shoot the bird, and they're like, oh, that bird's stupid. When, in fact, the bird's not. The bird has his way of surviving his typical threats, and they just haven't adjusted to human predation because there's just so little of it on them. Um, we used to hunt bears, black bears, in the spring on avalanche slides because when the mountains are all snowy, you get avalanche slides that are swept clean of snow. And those areas are the first to green up because the snow slid off and it doesn't need to melt off. And so when bears come out of hibernation, they'll come and find those avalanche shoots and feed on them. And we used to sit just at the base of an avalanche slide all day waiting for bears to come out. And doing this now and then, in the spring, you'd hear this noise that would go, and I can never figure out the hell it was. Because I was brought up in Michigan where there aren't these grouse don't live. Eventually realized that it's, it's a blue grouse. And that's their mating call in the spring is that hoot. It's haunting. What's haunting about it is you can't tell what direction it really came from. A couple years ago, I was out on uh, Revilla Island or Revelagegado Island in southeast Alaska, and we were messing around there one day. And we got up on this big high ridge, and I could hear five or six of these things going off. You know, like, ooh, 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 ooh. And I just thought, man, we'd come back here and pound them. Because Alaska is the only place you can hunt these birds in the spring. They call it the spring hooter season. Um, I thought it'd just be a matter of going up there and hearing it and walking down and getting it. So we even talked about doing an episode that was 22 minutes long with no tape, no cuts. It would just play straight time. From the time you heard one to the time you shot it. Time it out so we would just run a continuous <laughs> loop of film. Now, we went out and started looking for the first bird in about like... 10 hours into trying to find the first bird, we realized you were not going to do that. Can't find them. But I mean, you can. I learned how eventually. Very difficult to find them because it's just a ventriloquist sound. It's just like you can't locate the sound. I had a guy, there's a game call company where I knew some guys called Down and Dirty Game Calls. And I sent them a bunch of sound recordings that are on the Cornell university website they have this um, like a macaulay library of bird sounds i sent them some of the sounds that the females make and the females make a noise it sounds like it's almost like <laughs> and uh they made me a call that sounds like that and i played the other the male sound the sound to musician friends and people and i've been like what in the world would make that sound and people talked about this australian instrument that might the diggery do Yeah, they said that, that might, you could maybe use that. We tried beer bottles, all kinds of stuff. Oh, like blowing over the top? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could never make a satisfactory sound, but I got to where I was making a female sound. And then this guy I know in Utah named Shad Brunson um, got me a female blue grouse. And I had it go to a taxidermist named Colton in Montana, and he stuffed that blue grouse for me. Just a real rudimentary stuff job. And I took that thing out, and I would, I would hear where I could hear a bird, but I couldn't tell where I was hearing it from. But I'd get where I kind of knew I was in the area he was in and set that decoy out, the hen, and then make the call, like a tending call that they make to their young. And um, nothing. <laughs> nothing. They didn't give a shit. Couldn't, couldn't call them in. Uh. Yeah, and, I've, and uh, man, it was just really frustrating. And then I wound up 
finding I, I was so pissed about how this was going and so like baffled that i couldn't find these birds i called my brother who put me in touch with a buddy of his who put me in touch with a buddy of his who knew a guy who knew a lady who was very very good at finding blue grouse and she's out of Juneau, alaska and uh i went hunting with her and we were standing under grouse in a tree by 9 30 in the morning the first day after spending four days and found a bird. One bird. Yeah, we, she and I, I we, we were together three days. I think we found 15 of them. She just knew how to find them. When she hears that noise, she's hearing something that I don't hear. Wow. Well, that's the tenacity I'm talking about. Yeah. She's got it. Bad. Barb. <laughs> Is a tenacious, tenacious hunter. You know, my older brother who I keep talking about, he's got this term. Um, he talks about people having grr. Grr, like grr. Yeah. Mm. And, like, he's got a lot of gur when it comes to hunting. <laughs> I got a lot of gur. That's my only thing. Like, I'm not actually, like, I'm not a bad hunter. I'm definitely not a good hunter. But what I have going for me is. You're um, a very good hunter. What how I have going you? for me is I like to stick with it. Yeah. Well, how could you possibly say you're not a good hunter? Because sometimes I go out with guys who are just so good. Just but, good. But are they good at a specific type yeah. of hunting? Yeah, they get yeah. really good See, at you're, specific you're things. A, you're a broad spectrum guy. Yeah, no, I'm a, gen- I'm a good generalist. I'm a good generalist. But then I'll go out with guys who just know their stuff, man, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a little bit, it's almost a little bit shocking when, I, when I'm with someone who really knows what they're doing. And it, it just, uh, yeah. Well, doesn't that make sense, though? I mean, if you if you're going if you're going out with a guy who only hunts mule deer in Utah, and this guy just patterns mule deer every year, he knows all the trails. He spends time in the spring, uh, like searching for them. He spots them. He keeps an eye on them. He's watching them. He's getting ready for the season to open up. I mean, that guy is obviously going to have a greater database of information yeah. about mule deer. Then a guy like you just got back from Bolivia eating a monkey, and then you you know you arrive and uh, you did eat a monkey. Yeah, that's I, I want to talk to you about that too. That was a, that was a crazy fucking episode. Um, that's a fascinating episode too because you're talking about like ancient stuff and ancient methods and and the, the difference between people that are eating or, or existing primarily just they're subsisting hunting i mean they're not there's no sport involved in what they're doing at all they're just trying to survive yeah man they they love the well this was i wanted to point out real quick uh one guy that i one guy that i hunt with it's just like good and you know him remy oh yeah yeah remy warren's very like like i would you know i don't don't use this word very often to describe hunters He, he was what i would call a talented hunter like has talent like it's just he gets it you know um so we were down in bolivia have i not i have we not i haven't been on your podcast talking about this i don't believe so i don't think you've been on the podcast since you got back from bolivia have you i don't think i maybe i don't think so so we were down in bolivia we went down there to go up a river the casare river with these uh and, and travel with the chamane which is an, an autonomous indigenous group in bolivia um the you might a way to approach thinking about it would to think about the reservation system that we have here in the u.s where there's you know a fair bit of autonomy on reservations like they might be able to have a casino you know 
other stuff that violates state law because they're they're uh you know like a sort of a nation within a nation and, and bolivia had these huge areas of jungle um that are autonomous zones and, and we were in like the chamane area so they, they they're self-governing um we went and traveled up a, a river just doing like a basic river trip at the surface level we were going down there to fish a type of fish called dorado but the main thing i was interested in was just traveling with and, and hunting with these guys and they hunt with bows for the most part firearms are starting to come into their area but they hunt fish with bows homemade bows um and they hunt birds with bows and they do some big game hunting with bows but they're but 90 percent of their protein comes out of the river in the form of fish and they poison fish with a plant so we went out we went into a village and they were they were cultivating one of these plants there's a handful of plants down there that does it. like we use a fish poison here in the u.s when we're trying to get rid of invasives or whatever called rotenon rotenon's a root is derived from a root of a South American plant. And uh, these guys had a leaf. They had a, a tree that bore just like a green waxy leaf, and you'd pound that into a pulp. And you'd go out, and, and they'd go out into a river, and they'd try to find a little channel, like an isolated channel of a river or a pool that doesn't have a lot of current coming into it. And they'll pulp that plant and put it into a woven bag and just go out in the water and stir the pulped up, leaves in there and pretty soon all the fish come up and the fish are suffocating it somehow affects a fish's ability to pull oxygen from the water so the fish come up and they're gasping for air at the surface and then they just shoot the fish with their bows um they do some netting for fish but most of it's bow hunting and i fell in with a couple older guys there and we did some hunting and one of these guys had only ever hunted with a bow but a year earlier he had gone into some town and somehow got a Russian-made 16-gauge single-shot shotgun um, that was on. It was held together with wire. I was nervous about being around him when this gun went off. <laughs> and they like to hunt at night because now they have flashlights. So they got flashlights and they got a shotgun and they got their bows. And we would they would wait till dusk. And then we would head off into the jungle, and these guys only, uh, they speak their native language. They know a teeny bit of Spanish, but they speak Chimane. I would go out with them, and I would have no idea what they're talking about. And we would leave at dusk and just go into the jungle, and the noise of the jungle at night is just deafening, if you never experience. I mean, it's like, it's to the point where, I mean, have you ever been like out in a windy area for a long time where you start to feel like it's like affecting your sanity or affecting your ability to think mm-hmm. clearly? You know, or when you're on like small aircraft, the engine noise, you don't realize how agitated it's making you until you get away from it. And you all of a sudden it feels like relaxing in some way. The noise of the jungle is so loud. It's almost like that at night with the bugs and stuff going off. And we go out into the jungle and uh, I knew from going into it that their favorite food, even though they drive 90% of their protein from the river, their favorite food is a uh, spider monkey. Their second favorite food's howler monkey. And before it even gets dark out, we go down this trail for a while through the jungle. And they come to a date tree. And dates will fruit periodically throughout the year. And, you, you know, you're close. You're getting closer to the, to the equator now there. So there's not like you don't have the seasonality as much. So plants will fruit all the time rather than just in the summertime. And they get to this date tree. And this date tree's fruiting. 
And he's looking at these dates on the ground, and he finds some shit that I now realize must have been monkey shit. And they got real interested in what was going on up above us. And pretty soon he sees uh, this howler monkey starts going through the treetops, and he shoots it down out of the tree with, a, with that shotgun he had with him. And first thing he does is he takes the tail and cuts the tail off the monkey, the tip of the monkey's tail, and buries it in the ground. I couldn't even ask him why he was doing this, but later I learned it's, you do that so that the next monkey you kill, he doesn't get hung up in the tree by his tail. Then, just like a, a belief, you know. Then he cuts some bark off a tree and makes a little harness so he can carry the monkey over his across his chest so he's just got the monkey slung on him like a baby carrier and uh we just head off in the jungle and hunt for several hours that night and then the next day well we got back and they uh gutted the monkey out and kept all the intestines and everything out of that monkey and eventually they burned the hair off it and trust it like how you trust a turkey and smoked it over a fire and i did not want to eat a monkey like, it did not want to eat a primate, you know. But at that point, I'd been out with them, and, you know, I was going to eat it, but it was very difficult for me to enjoy psychologically. I had the same problem being in Vietnam and being served domestic dog, where I ate, I ate domestic dog seven nights in a row. And just was never, people go, like, what did it taste like? I was like, I can't even tell you. It was like something, I would get so hot. Like my body would feel so hot eating that, just like it's like just this like wrongness. Well, so it's like because of nerves. Yeah, man, I so couldn't tell what it tastes like. Psychological heat. Yeah, very hard to eat the monkey. If I could say what it tastes like eating that monkey, it tasted like if you took steel cable and put liquid smoke on it. <laughs> they loved it. <laughs> Why do they? What will they have a specific preference? They like howler over spider or spider over howler. No, dude, Which they one like is it? spiders, then spider red howlers. Now, Why? a couple nights later, we're coming back from fishing one night, and we had we had a giant catfish with us, and a handful of other fish with us, and we're coming back through the jungle, and it's just getting starting to come on to darkness, and they see another kind of monkey. I can't remember, like a capuche or capiche or some. They, that's not what they call it in their language, but a, a, another kind of monkey. And I'm like, surely they're going to go after this monkey. No interest in that monkey. Not a good one. The same night they got the red howler monkey. We go down the trail and it's just getting dark and I see a possum. Same marsupial, same possum we have here. And I'm like, surely these guys are going to want that. If they'll eat a damn monkey, they're going to want a possum. <laughs> People in the U.S. eat possums. They look at that thing and just walk by like it doesn't even exist. And later I was able to ask him through, like, by asking them, by asking someone who speaks some Spanish, he was able to, so it was like a three-way translation. I was like, why didn't you guys want the possum? And he explained to me that you'd only eat a possum if you were real hungry. But meanwhile, they're after monkey. And when they get a monkey, it's a party. A party? Yeah. Everybody comes and they're real excited. And the thing I say in the show, we did a whole three-part series about Bolivia and the Chimane. But the thing I say in the show when we're talking about this is think of the – there's, there's only two things I know about that, that get the kind of enthusiasm from a culinary perspective 
in the U.S. to get the kind of enthusiasm these guys had for monkeys. It'd be someone who has homegrown tomatoes <laughs> and morel mushrooms. Are the only things I know about that people have that level of love for. They were more excited about eating that red holler monkey than you've ever been about eating anything you ever ate, I promise you. And they eat them on a regular basis. No. No. They hadn't got... They had... They rarely go up to this area, and that's one of the reasons they like to go up to this area is because you can get monkeys. They hadn't had a monkey for eight months, I think. I remember, I think it was eight months they had had those last time they had gone into an area where they would where they would find the monkeys. So did you specifically ask them to go to this area where the monkeys were? Or was no, it just we were a- just going to an area that's like the happy hunting grounds. Wow. A lot of fit. They were very excited to go, and it was several days upriver. It's like Apocalypse Now. They're very excited to go up this area because it's the area they like to go to to hunt and fish. So this, so this monkey thing tastes like steel cable. Like it was just You know, have you ever had a smoke, a smoke turkey drumstick? Yes. Okay, imagine the lowest part on that smoky turkey drumstick where you're getting close to the joint. You're just pulling it yeah, off. Yeah, that's what that monkey's leather. like. But I'll tell you something that's like, well, they had a baby monkey at one point. Okay, a very young baby monkey at one point, and they just cooked it in a wok. And I wasn't even offered any of that. They just saved that for themselves. A couple of the guys had it. I remember one of them had a like a head in a bowl. Loving Ooh, it. Jesus and what's funny Christ. about it too, dude, what's funny about it is I remember being in uh I remember I don't know why I'm seeing this now. I, I did it I, I hunted with another like indigenous group in in uh Guyana. And uh, I remember this guy had a shirt with Muhammad Ali on it, and um, I was trying to ask him about it. He didn't; he had no idea. And another one had a shirt from a pizza place. He had no idea what pizza was. Wow! You know, not that they have a responsibility to know about Muhammad Ali and pizza, but just saying, like, for them to hear that, for them to hear from us, be like, dude, it is very rare to eat a monkey. You know, it was just to them; it was just baffling. It was like. They weren't like, yeah, I know some people don't like it. You know, like if you go down and someone gives you squirrel brains and they're like, yeah, man, it's kind of fucked up. We eat squirrel brains. Like, no, it was just in their mind, it was like their fathers, grandfathers, great grandfathers, great grandfathers like Howler Monkey. How would you not be excited about this? Like, no idea of it being like globally fringe. It's just so strange that you don't have their language available. So it's it, you can't have like a real conversation about it. Like, what is it about this that you enjoy more? Because you guys shot a deer too. Yeah. But they wanted the monkey more than the deer. They liked the deer more than the monkey. And that deer was phenomenal. They want the deer more than the monkey. No, no, no. They liked the monkey more, more than, than the, the deer. deer. Okay. But the deer was very good. They were very glad about the deer, but they liked the monkey more than the deer. What do they think about your bow? Because you you brought they were blown a away. modern they were blown away by compound bow. Yeah. I had. Did you feel like you wanted to leave it with them? You know, but if you did, they wouldn't be able to get arrows for it anyway. Yeah, there's that, and like you have all these weird uh, hanging out with people, like with people who like that. You have all these weird hangups, or at least I do, like all this like colonial type guilt or something where you don't want to. I'll put it to you this way: I was bummed that that guy had that shotgun. Really, he's glad as hell. Right, right. it's the right. greatest thing that ever happened to him. He's got a damn shotgun, right? He couldn't be happier. But I was like, man, you know, I just wish you didn't have that shotgun. You started to hunt with your bow. 
So it's like me, you're, you're exercising some kind of weird, I don't want to call it like racism. It's not racism. It's something, it's just like some kind of like the new colonialism. There's a Puritan aspect of it, a pure, yeah. pure. Like, for instance, there's these guys down there, there's these Bolivians who are from the urban area down there, like of Europe, like of mixed European indigenous ancestry. And there's, they're very, like in Bolivia, the ruling class, the urban people are very different than the, than the indigenous people. Okay. There is, they have, a, I don't want to say categorically, but there's a view of the indigenous people that would have seemed more like the 1870s here in the U S in some circles, the way they view the backwardness of the indigenous people and trying to bring out missionaries to, you know, help them find religion and get them to settle down and stop being nomadic. And, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that we were having the, that conversation 150 years ago here. Um, there's these guys that are doing these trips, who we orchestrated our trip through, who are trying to introduce these guys. to. to they're trying to get these guys hip to the idea of not eating one of their favorite fish, which is the Dorado, because rich white guys will pay a lot of money to come down and catch Dorado. That was kind of our in to go down here, was to go up to this area where they catch Dorado. So they're trying to sell these dudes on not messing with Dorado. I was bummed out about that. Like I hated seeing that because like, that's their favorite fish, man. What are you tell? You're trying to tell them that like, now we want to tell them to not eat their favorite fish. Cause guys like me, you might want to come down and catch the thing. And it's not even going to have a negative implication, the ramification. Anyways, you're not going to like over harvest them with bows and arrows, you know? Right. But it was just like this weird thing. So yeah, I didn't like that The guy had the shotgun, even though he was glad about the shotgun. I had my bow. And when I brought my bow down, that my main goal in having a bow you're not gonna bring a firearm down there like they can't have firearms not supposed to have firearms so i wasn't gonna bring a firearm i would never be able to get it in there anyways it would probably been very bad to bring it um but i could bring a bow no problem my main goal in bringing the bow was that i would have like some uh that i would establish some credibility with them and it did when i we got up and I was shooting their bows and doing some fishing with their equipment and stuff. When I got out my bow, they were like, yeah, very, very surprised by a compound bow. Well, they uh, see how fast the arrow shoots, They right? couldn't believe it. They, a lot of them, wouldn't, they didn't want to shoot it. Some of them wanted to shoot it. Um, a lot of them were like just deeply, not, not impressed with me, but just impressed by the technology. Did you let them shoot it? Yeah, I let a couple of them shoot Did it. Did they but use they, a wrist release? Yeah, yeah, but it was just like they'd... You know, it's hard to keep them from dry firing. I mean, it's just like, because yeah. you can't tell. Like, I can't explain to right, them. So you're right. trying to demonstrate things. Was, someone was going to get hurt shooting the boat. Right. You know, these weren't like, and, and it was funny is these guys would beat my ass all over town. A lot of them couldn't come close to pulling the bow back. That's bizarre. How, how heavy is the bow? 70. They couldn't pull it back. No, because you develop a muscle for bo- pulling those bows back. And these guys would beat my ass. They couldn't believe how hard that bow was to pull back. And I just wanted to be like, it's just, I just can pull it because I pull bows. You know, hmm. it's hard. Yeah. It's like they had, a, I'm sure if they had to spend a day at it, they would have gotten the pull down. It was just different. They're like going about how they pull their long bows. Right. Right. It's just a different kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Their bows didn't seem very strong. No, not at all. Not at all. So it's just about, and they had really long arrows too, which is very strange. Yeah. Those super long arrows and they would carry three kinds of tips. They carry a big game tip, a bird tip and a fish tip. So every guy's got three arrows with his bow, but they love that bow. But I wound up being... I, w- I just really wanted to be able to hang out with them and have them not like stop. Like when I would walk up into them, where they, they'd be standing around eating some fish around their fire, and I would walk up and they'd all quit eating. 
And I eventually got where we were comfortable together. Like, they would kind of show me stuff, and they kind of, you know, I don't want to say they liked me, but they just sort of accepted me, and I eventually got it explained to them through actions and otherwise that I was very interested in their food. I was very interested in how they hunted. I would go out into the jungle at night with them. You know, I got stung by a bullet ant, and, you know, and that's excruciating, and they watched me kind of, like, suffer through that and come out of that. And eventually we became friendly. You know, and I had the bow just so because I wanted to go out and hunt with them. And because I had the bow, they were impressed by the bow and they it was just better. It just worked better, me having a bow. So they took you in. Yeah. Once they saw that. They were like, yeah, they felt that. Um, you pulled your weight. Yeah, they wound up kind of liking, uh, like, you know, and the guys that we were traveling with, I was down there with uh, Giannis was there and Dan was there and a guy named Phil was down there, a camera operator named Phil was down there. And we all wound up being like cool with these guys you know like we, we got along well but it took a long it took a long time to get kind of in with them to have them start sort of showing you their world a little bit because you you realize that they're used to being viewed they're, they're, they had been enough exposure to outside to the outside world to realize that the outside world usually carried a certain amount of disapproval for their food and dress and other things now, I, I gathered. That was my impression. But after you, a while, they were like, oh, this guy's cool. You know, and we would just hang out. Did you guys have to pay them? Like, how did they accept you into their fold? We paid the guys that are trying. These guys are trying to develop a recreational fishery in this area. But they're going into places no one goes into. And they're trying to establish. They were in the process of trying to establish a thing where... They would have paying clients come down, and the paying clients would go on these river trips up to fish in these areas. The only way you can do it, because it's Chimane land, the only way you can do it is by going through the Chimane. And the only people you're going to hire to get the boats up the rivers and paddle the boats and run the boats and run the engines and get them stuck out of the rapids and all the difficult traveling that involves you to hire Chimane guys to do it. So we hired the guys that hired the Chimane with the sole goal of, I was just interested in traveling with the Chimane. How did you get this in your head? Like, what, is this something you researched in advance? I mean, how do, how do you make a decision to go to one particular indigenous tribe? So I did a similar thing. Um, I did a similar thing for TV down in, in Guyana. I was just blown away by it. Just traveling with guys. And, and the guys in Guyana, did, you know, they were still actively hunting with bows. In some ways, they were a more modernized people, but they were still avid bow fishermen hunted with bows i took my bow down there and hunted i, I remember i shot a a big game bird a big turkey like game bird out of a tree with my bow from about 40 yards and they were blown away man um it was just it was just it's like fun i learned more about hunting and about looking at the landscape and about indigenous food paths in those weeks that i've been fortunate to do that kind of trip than than I would learn in years of hunting with American hunters. Because wow. you got to understand, these guys down there, let's say you're with someone who's who's 35 years old, 40 years old. He's hunted you know, probably five, six days a week for his entire life within a 100-mile radius of his home. The level of understanding that you get 
but it's it, but it's raw jungle. You know, it's like undeveloped jungle. The level of understanding you get about what's going on around you is just different than what we're able to achieve today. Especially someone like me who tra- I travel around a lot and experience a lot of different things. But what I what I lack, what I miss out on from the way I do things is I miss out on that level of detailed local understanding that I had as a kid. For instance, for the lake where I grew up, the lake I grew up on, I knew it well, right, better than anybody or as good as anybody. Um, they have that about the jungle. So to go out with guys like that and just watch how they interact and what noises make sense to them, um, you know, it's just it's really informative and it just helps you kind of understand humanity better. I remember going out in the jungle with them one night and it's Meryl talking about how loud it is. Mm-hmm. Like you can't even believe how loud it is. And all these noises, you're like, what is all this stuff? I, it must be whatever. And then I, one time I hear a noise that sounds like this off in the jungle. Everything, they just stopped. It was like, oh, so that noise of the thousands of noises going on, this is very interesting to them, you know. <laughs> and what was it? I have no idea. They didn't go after it? They just No, but they're real interested in that noise. Like something made that noise and they're like, of all the sticks snapping and things dropping and birds going off and insects and you know, getting bit by bullet ants, they hear what sounds like a stick way the hell off. And it just means something to them. Was the bullet ant as bad as everybody says it is? Dude, yeah. You ever see that Schmidt pain index? Yes. The Schmidt pain index, he scores all insect bites. And the bull ant's the only one that gets a four-plus rating. <laughs> like a five-star hotel. It's the highest rated. There's, he has found, and he's a, he studies you know, insect toxins and insect stings. He's found nothing else that's as painful. So what does it feel like? It feels at first like you got zapped by a wasp or hornet. Um, and maybe 10 minutes into it, a minute into it, it becomes something very different than that. Ten minutes into it, you feel like something's really wrong, like arthritic pain, um, throbbing, throbbing pain that goes way away from the source. And we couldn't speak, and we're out in the jungle at night. And first they go and find a, a vine and pulp up some of the vine and put the vine where I got hit. I don't know what the vine was. It had I couldn't tell that it had any difference. It didn't mean anything different. But that was bit on my ankle. And one of the camera guy, Phil Baraboo, was bit on his hand at the same time. And he kept pointing to Phil's hand, but then running his finger, the Chimane guys, pointing to Phil's hand and running his finger up his arm like to his heart. He keeps doing that to Phil. And he keeps taking to me and pointing his finger to his ankle and then running his finger up the inside of his leg to his groin. And I thought that means that the t- poison or toxin or somehow is going to travel up and get you. I couldn't tell what he was talking about. And all I knew was it was bad to get bit by a bullet ant. Pretty soon it was so bad, I couldn't even, we weren't even able to walk. I wasn't able to walk. I just had to lay there and just like writhe. You know? For how long? Well, I'll tell you this. An hour and 45 minutes later, I couldn't remember what the hell ankle it was. Really? No mark. No mark and you couldn't figure out which ankle it was. I was walking under two hours later. I remember thinking, like, I remember realizing I couldn't think of what ankle it had been on. Do you think that's because of the medication that they use? Because no, of the plant? I've read that from a lot of other people. Really? Yeah. Well, I thought it lasted for like 24 hours. For me, now they do a thing where they take like a, some kind of mitt and mm-hmm. fill it full of them. Yeah. And you put the mitt on. It's like an initiation. Yeah. And you get bit a lot. And then it's a whole, I guess it's a whole other world. But for me, I think it was, I could be wrong. 
no, I don't think I am, man. I think that it was the the peak was 30, 40 minutes into it. Um, and then it, and then it just tapered, 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 and then gone. Oh. Now, if I got hit by one now, knowing what I know now, I don't want to say that I would enjoy it, but I would be more interested. I would be interested in what was going on and watching the progression. But I was so scared because I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know if it was like getting hit by a rattlesnake. Right. Where you need to go and figure right. shit out or what. And they weren't able to tell me what well, was happening. And they're doing that dick. weird. Yeah. What I later learned, what they were saying was make sure they don't have any in your sleeves and make sure you don't oh. have any because they'll come up and get you on the chest, which might be bad, or they'll get you on the balls, which is bad. Oh, yeah. I would imagine. So he's saying, like, not that it's traveling up to your, not that it's traveling up to your groin, but that an ant don't let an ant get up your pants and get you. The Schmidt. Oh, there's the Schmidt pain index. Three hundred mins. Three hundred minutes. Three hundred minutes. Okay. Wow. Boy, so he's yeah. really souped that index up recently. I got I got <laughs> stung by a wasp recently in Colorado, and it was the most fucking painful sting I've ever felt in my life. And I don't know what happened. I was walking, and all of a sudden I go, ah! Like, it was, like, unusual. It didn't make any sense. I was like, what the fuck just bit me? Like, I've been stung by bees before. Yeah. I don't I think I've been stung by hornets. I, I, I think it was a wasp. It was a wasp or hornet. I didn't even see what the bug was because I was going through this heavy bush. And uh, my fucking arm swole up like Popeye. It was so weird. Like, it, it was hard. Like, the yep. bottom of my forearm turned... Ronnie thick. Bam got hit by something like that down in Virginia that the next day turned into a big, hard knob. Like, he had, a like, a softball stuck under his skin. Yeah, and it lasted for, like, five or six days. And it was it was so itchy. Like, I had to do everything I could to keep from clawing my arm apart. Where I would go under the shower, and I'd turn the shower up really hot to the point where it would be painful with any other part of my body and just shove that arm underneath the super hot water like I was scratching it with this in, insanely hot water. Yeah. It was burning my arm. But uh, nothing like a bullet ant. <laughs> I got hit by a lionfish. Oh, I've seen those things. Yeah, and that, um, again, scared the shit out of me because I didn't really know what all it meant. We were spearfishing, and I got hit by a lionfish. And the thing you do is you heat water up to boiling and let it cool and the minute you can even kind of stand to put your water your hand in there you dip your hand in there and it takes the pain away wow that was an, that was another thing it was just like my hand swelled up like 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 not really usable like an old mickey mouse hand for how long a couple hours again we were out i had gone down we were spearfishing in the bahamas and i had gone down and uh, shot a lionfish because they're good to eat. Um, I mean, we were doing them like ceviche. They're very good. Really? White flesh, yeah. You got to be real careful with them. I'd gone down and shot a lionfish. But careful how so? What's that? Hey, careful how so? You have to avoid the stingers? Oh, so what we would do is when you get a lionfish, we'd take the lionfish and leave it on the spear and then open a cooler up and stick the spear and the lionfish into the cooler and shut the lid. And pull so that your spear would come out and the lionfish would fall into the cooler. Now, lionfish, just to, for your listeners, it's a it's a non-native that uh, has been introduced 
into the Caribbean is wreaking much havoc from Florida southward, and they're you know they they're doing a lot to try to get rid of them. You see why? Because they're so viciously territorial. And out there in the Bahamas, you have these small little coral heads, and a couple of lionfish would move in there, and they would just move out other fish. So there's no regulations on lionfish. You're allowed to kill as many as you want. They encourage you to kill as many as you want. So will the people let them loose from aquariums? Yeah, or something? I think somehow they escaped through the Fucking aquarium trade. Florida of some sort. and aquariums, yeah. man. I can't. I don't want to say for sure. Maybe your uh, your uh, internet whiz over here, Jamie, will be able to tell you the answer to that. But uh, how they how they got in their first place. But anyhow. Then later would take poultry shears and just get big rubber gloves once the fish is dead and take poultry shears and cut all the thorns off it, then flay it. So the thorns are where the toxins stored, yeah. not in the glands yeah, underneath they, it? they got injected in you with the, with the, with the thorns and or the, the spines, you know. Right. And these spines, is the, the toxin in the spine itself or is there a gland underneath it. it? No, it's, it's on, on it. it. Yeah. Huh. That's my understanding. Huh. Now, I'd gone, I ran out of breath and left my spear stuck in a lionfish down on the bottom. Came up, got a breath, went down. And as I'm trying to get my lionfish out of this area he was in without pulling him off the spear, I noticed a grouper in, in a hole. So I went up and I got a lionfish on my spear. And I'm waving to my brother to come over because I don't want, I can't take the lionfish off my spear. And I'm waving him to come over about the grouper. And he comes over and he's got a snapper on the end of his spear. So I take the snapper off his spear, and I'm holding the damn snapper in my right hand, and I have a lionfish on my spear in my left hand, and I'm going underwater trying to point to the hole that has the grouper in it and somehow swung that lionfish into my hand. And it got all weird and puffy, and I crawled up into the boat and was just kind of like writhing in the bottom of the boat. And I started getting really scared because my hands started to feel hot and all bloated. And... uh Eventually waved my brother and our buddy Eric over, and we went in. We were 45 minutes from the shore and went in, and by then I was really scared. And my buddy Ronnie Bain was there, and he's like saying I should put it under cold water, and I went and typed in the internet. It's like, do not put it in cold water. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, yeah. It was something, man. You have, here it goes, speculated the root of the problem was only six lionfish accidentally released from an aquarium aquarium during the Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Wow. That's crazy. Genetic research supports this finger pointing, but it's likely many more have been intentionally released by retired aquarium enthusiasts. Retired aquarium enthusiasts. That's a funny way of looking at it. But Florida has a gigantic issue with invasive species yeah, when it comes from aquariums. It's amazing. Whether it's pythons or, you know, they found Nile crocs in the no, Everglades really? now. Yeah. They've, uh, there was a, reading a whole article how they have just a kill on site for Nile crocs. They're just terrified these fucking giant crocs are going to grow to be these 28-foot-long killers like they have in Mozambique yeah. or wherever the fuck it is. Florida's the Florida's the future of wilderness how so because as we move species around with reckless abandon um intentionally unintentionally and we eliminate biodiversity in some areas through habitat destruction and if current trends continue and the earth continues to get hotter and we lose a lot of the climatic diversity different climates that we have different places if that continues um i think that 
you will have will, will continue to see like the great mixing you know uh, and you and we'll just wind up with a situation where there are certain every animal is going to get a shot at every biome and you're just going to have it be that certain ones that can thrive are going to thrive and you're not going to have the levels of endemism that we have now and i think that yeah in the future you know just look at what the wild pig has managed to do here in the u.s you know it's the dominant large animal on some landscapes it's a a non-native um the in my lifetime in the great lakes the round go you know gobies zebra mussels if you go now and drop a baited hook down in places that I grew up fishing, the first thing you would pull up is a goby. They were not there. It's just certain things are winners and certain things are losers. Not all the winners are going to be non-natives because white-tailed deer do well around people. Crows seem to do well around people. Canada geese do very well around people. It's just going to be that it's just going to be more and more and more aquarium-like. <laughs> Isn't it weird how people have this desire to manipulate and manage all the other wildlife? I mean, it is strange when you think about the evidence that points to the contrary. The evidence that points to, I mean, there there are like like you said, more white-tailed deer in the United States now than when Columbus landed. So they've done a great job in in bringing back healthy populations of certain animals. But then you see like the shit they've done in Florida, where the pythons are yeah. fucking eating alligators. I mean, have you you seen that image of the? Yeah. that's it's a crazy. Famous image. That is a crazy image of twenty foot long python that ate a fucking alligator. I mean, they have this is a, a crazy system going on down there where these non indigenous animals are just crushing all these other animals and 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 surviving and thriving in, in an environment that's pretty compatible for them. You know, as far as, you know, tropical, hot yeah. climate, moist, plenty of things to eat, plenty of life out there for them to snuff out. And in some areas they're finding, a friend of mine, Robert Abernathy, who's a biologist and, and conservationist, big hunter, he uh, he was working with some guys that are going down there. And there's a whole class of mid-sized animal that's just missing from those python areas now. Whoa. Basically, like possum raccoon sized critters are just gone you know you will see it like that's why this i'll just bring this full circle back to some things we were talking about a lot of the conservation groups that i get involved in um things like you know national wild turkey federation rocky mountain elk foundation um they pick you know they're they're powered by hunters and powered by hunter money in the in the effort to preserve habitat for certain species but like native animals that wind up by helping those you know you're helping all other creatures because you can't fix elk like if you fix elk habitat you're fixing everyone's habitat you know it's like a keystone thing like you if you help elk by salvaging riparian areas you're helping all critters across the board you know you're enhancing wildlife and a big risk that you have with if you look at native wildlife and you cherish native wildlife and i do one of the big risks we have coming down the line is just the non-native stuff you know i mean as far as even just vegetation we have a lot of areas that we're seeing those high quality plants being displaced by you know plants that make native wildlife sick that they can't live on 
it's a big, big problem. And, uh, and in some ways, you want to look at Florida, and it's almost like the wildlife situation in Florida has almost kind of become a joke where it's so outlandish. That it's like this like Jurassic Park environment. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also, you look at it and you're like, God, you know, it's like this wild place and it's, and you know, it's the new wilderness in some ways, but in some ways it's just like, it's really sad what that's going to mean for the endemics. Well, Florida sort of attracts that even with human beings yeah. though. Yeah. I mean, those are non-native human beings that went down there and took over too. It's all people that escaped from the mob from New York <laughs> and weird people from Cuba that yeah, came up read, and read rafts. the books of like Carl Hyacinth, man. I and mean, then the cocaine thing—that's yeah. also a non-native plant. It's you know its main byproduct introduced to that area that changed the entire ecosystem financially. You know, there's more banks per capita in Miami than there are in the rest of the country, and the reason being is because that's where they fucking launch money i mean it's really clear i grew up with just a tremendous affinity for florida because in michigan that's in my area michigan like when you went on vacation you went to florida sure it's just like you didn't go it was just where you it's a went great place to vacation yeah but and now like madness. in other parts of the country people are like you went where <laughs> i'm like yeah man florida why i'm like because it's florida man it's amazing you know there's a great fishing but a lot of people but yeah it's just like we associated so strongly with Florida and the fishing in Florida that I do. I have a soft spot. And I was down there and I was talking to this kid who likes to hunt down there not long ago. And he was telling me, this is the hunting and fishing capital of the world. <laughs> Florida. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have a lot of game down there. Yeah, they do. They have, they have a, a lot. He, he was a wild pig hunter. A lot of wild pigs, right? Yeah. Isn't that where you shot the wild pig with the Brian Gumble mm -hmm. in that episode? Yeah. Yeah, Florida's a nutty spot, and you know they're saying that it's not even going to be there. If the water rises the way it's rising right now, they're thinking Miami won't even exist in 30 or 40 years. That Because it's all like very porous. Porous that, limestone. Yeah, yeah. That the water's just, it's not going to be like New Orleans where they could dam it up. It's like it's just going to come right through the ground, and that's going to be a wrap. It's going to be more, uh, there's a thing I like to fish called flats. It's going to be a lot more flats. <laughs> You gotta be flat near the Miami yeah, knee Hotel. Deep, yeah, knee deep water. How man. strange would it be? It's gonna be like a lot of redfish. Hopefully, taking a fucking boat ride for fish around the Miami Hotel. What time is your uh, flight? What time? I, you... I gotta get. I gotta get going right now. Well, I got. I think he was saying I'd be stupid to leave after three thirty. Okay. Well, it's three thirteen. Don't be stupid. We'll get oh. you get you out of here in a few minutes. Um, what else did I want to ask you about? Oh. The, 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 one of the things about Bolivia that I found fascinating was that the people seem to have adapted physically to that environment. Like you were saying that you were traveling with those people and they didn't sweat. Yeah. Like you're sweating like crazy. It's pouring out of your pores. We would go out at night and, uh, <laughs> well, first off, these guys chew uh, coca leaves, oh. which we all got into big time. I could never tell what it's actually doing. You know, it's, like, it's what they make cocaine from. They take the coca leaf and they put a... Uh, Lime on it. Was it lye or lime? No, baking soda. That's what they put on there. Lye was the. That's what they use with that betel nut. No, they take a leaf and you pack your cheek. They call it a bola, a ball. I mean, to the point where your cheek looks seriously puffed out and inflamed, with full of leaves. And then you put baking soda in there because it somehow activates the alkaloids. And it's supposed to give you a boost and keep you going at night. So. I'd be out there and I'd have a couple water bottles and I'd just be slamming water and just pouring sweat. And I'm not like a sweaty dude, but I'd be sweating so bad out in the jungle, drinking all this water. And these guys each got a a bag. They wear these little shoulder things. It looks almost like a woman's purse, but it's like a handmade bag they carry. 
and it would have a kitchen knife in it, like a paring knife, which would be their hunting knife, or they just have that in their back pocket. They don't wear shoes. They'd have that bag. What? They don't wear shoes? Yeah. You know what? One of the guys put shoes on. We were going out, and he couldn't get used to them because he never wore shoes. But he wanted to try them out. They go out barefoot. So, Ooh. and they got this leaf. They're coca leaves. They got a bag of baking soda. And then they had this, like, one of these water bottles. And I thought that they were somehow able to get through all night, two of them, with one water bottle of water. And I was impressed by that. But later someone told me it's a, it's a distilled spirit. So it's not even water. No, it's like vodka, but not. So, so they're drinking vodka and they hydrate. Coke. Yeah. Chewing coca leaves, drinking. It's not vodka, but it's like a, it's like a rice. It's like a, like a, some kind of thing. Like you take rice wine and somehow distill it. I don't understand how they did it. Wow. I, 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 the guys I was with remember what it was. And it was real strong. And, uh. Like a moonshine almost. Yeah, and they would be out there with a mouth packed full of coca leaves, sticking bacon soda in there, drinking that stuff out of a water bottle, and they wouldn't drink water all night. Wow. I was dying. Yeah, they're accustomed to it. But the, here's the thing. like When you want to get into that, if you took those boys, because they've never experienced they've never experienced a, a temperature below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, in their life. Right. So... If you took those boys and, and I was like, hey, man, we're going to go hunt in the Arctic for caribou and there's going to be snow on the ground, you know, um, they would go home and talk about how we are some kind of Superman heroes <laughs> sleeping out in the snow, you know. Right. It would, blow, it would blow their mind. What if you took them to Nunavak? It would blow their mind. Took them to that. You just get really like you get set in your... Remember how everybody always likes to make that big deal about how in the like in the Inuit language they have like twenty four words for snow. Mm-hmm. Right? I just don't think that we have a difficult time describing people who like to ski have many ways of describing snow. It's kind of a it's like a little bit it's uh, it's almost dishonest because we have like yeah we have like light powder, heavy powder, slushy snow. You know, on and on and on. Like, we have ways of describing snow. And it's easy to sort of mythologize um, people or you go down, you get the feeling that there's like these super, I do, that these superhuman beings. But then, you know, I look at it, it's just like they're just used to a landscape that's baffling to me. You know, like, look, there's four of us out. Two of us got hit by bullet ants. Who got hit by bullet ants? Me and the other white guy. Right? Those guys didn't get hit by a bullet ant. And they're barefoot. Yeah. How do they, they, why did they not get hit by a bullet ant? Because they walk through, they just know the risks. The same way if I took them and we were walking around somewhere in some urban environment, they might not know when it's a good time to cross the street and walk off the other side, the other one. You know? Right. It was, I'd be like, what, are you dumb? <laughs> like, no, he just doesn't know. Right. I don't know. Like, I wasn't tuned into the threat of bullet ants. They would notice snakes that I didn't, you know, they would see a snake they would notice that I didn't notice. They would always, when they got to a log, they would inspect the log very carefully. If it had a bullet ant on it, they would kill it very delicately with the tip of a bow. Like they just had a way that they'd like to like press and kill the bullet ant in like this very like dainty fashion. Um, 
Why is that? I don't know. I could never figure it out, man. They just had like a little way that they would crush bullet ants. It was interesting. Would bullet ants go in these large groups? or Maybe they... they didn't want to disturb it because the pheromones would get oh. all their bullet ants excited. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like if you got a bunch of hornets around, you start flailing wildly. I don't know. I would right, just right, know right. so they would do it. They just walked through and they knew their area. And yeah, I was tempted to be like, man, these are like gods. They're so aware. But then I feel like had I been brought up there hanging out, I might have not got hit by a bullet. <laughs> I might have not got hit by a bullet. Ant. Well, they probably all been hit, right? I asked them and they couldn't. I later was able to ask them, and one guy was saying he had probably been hit. Maybe I remember I thought he'd said somehow around nine times, and another guy was saying he had no way of even recollecting how many times he'd been hit by a bullet. Ant. Wow, it's just crazy that they walk around barefoot. Yeah, they do things barefoot that are that. that what do their feet look like? Not like yours. Just thick. Flattened out. Yeah. They flattened get, out. They get, your feet get real flattened out. Your toe, your thumb toe, let's say, starts to move away. Like a monkey. Mm-hmm. Starts to move away from your other toes. I've never seen anything so like it quite as much as I was in the Philippines in the highlands. And uh, the guys there, they're, they're in the mountains, like in serious mountains, barefoot, you know, growing up hunting their whole lives in the mountains, barefoot on just bad rock and everything all the time. And in their feet, you wouldn't have been able to put that foot in the shoe. No way now. Wow. Their toes had their toes are so spread. You can find pictures of that stuff online. Just like kind of like a famous sort of thing that happens to those guys in the in the Central Highlands and Luzon Island. Their feet are just incredible. Makes but I think sense. it's just like your feet, are, your toes are held, you know, inside your shoes. Your Toes are held in a way that they just, if you're walking on a rock and in mountainous landscapes all the time, your feet just fan out. Wow. You know? Like hands. Yeah, man. Like creepy. <laughs> yeah. Creepy. I don't want to say creepy in a bad way, but it but was like, kind of creepy to you. Yeah. And yeah. when I was there, I spent more time looking at people's feet than I did their, <laughs> than I did their faces. Just to try to figure it out. Yeah. And some of these old guys had these tattoos that recounted when they used to headhunt for the Japanese after World War II. I mean, Whoa. Yeah, these guys were, you know, they were pretty hardcore fellas. Because wow. after, you know, when um, when they took the Philippines, so many of the Japanese went up and just hid out, you know, and they would make a big sport out of finding them. Wow. Because the Americans wanted them, you know, and they'd get these tattoos that are exploits. So we met old people, and they were introduced to us as such, but who'd been headhunters, you know. And they would have their tail narrated on, on their thing. And they would uh, go out in the jungle, and they had these souped-up air rifles. And they'd go out in the jungle and hunt with air rifles. And then they'd had these – you ever hear electroshocking for fish? Yeah. They would have homemade electroshocking kits. They'd have a car battery and a bat. Like I saw this guy that had a big, huge detergent bottle that he turned into a backpack. And in that detergent bottle, he had a stack of batteries. And he had a negative and a positive wand and he would stand out on rocks in the river we were doing a we were floating down a river with these guys he'd stand out on a rock in the river and put those under put those wands under rocks and under logs electroshocking fish and shrimp freshwater shrimp and how was he grounded he would just stand on a rock and stick them in there same way when you're electro fishing for anything doing a survey and he would shock them up, then run down the river with a net and net up all the stuff that he shocked. And he'd get a log burning and roll the log over and lay the shrimp and crabs on the log until they turn red and eat them. Wow. My brother was shocking fish one time and got done shocking fish for a fish survey, was walking back from having shocked fish. 
and he had the fish in a gunny sack. And a bolt of lightning came out of the sky, hit the ground next to him, and a shot of that electricity shot up into the sack of fish and shocked him. Whoa. I'd like to end on that. Because... Some kind of cosmic retribution. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, Remy got hit by lightning. Mm-hmm. You know that story, right? Remy's got some good stories. He's got some real good stories. He's got a story about that they were burning brush one time. Someone burned a big brush pile, and it was dry conditions, and they burned a big brush pile, and all kinds of rodents started running out of the brush pile on fire, starting little fires all over the place as they ran away. Oh, no. It's a horrific story. Oh, my God. Let's I want to that. end on that. Let's end on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this book is fucking excellent. Um, the Complete Guide. Oh, can I say one last? Can yes. you turn off the fade music? Yes. I forgot this thing I got to talk about. We got seven more minutes. Yeah, this is important because okay. uh, if you have Verizon Files... Oh, yes. Yeah. All your listeners. Yeah. yeah. Verizon Files is in some kind of, there's some kind of piss and match. I don't really understand it. But they've pulled for now, they've pulled Outdoor Channel and Sportsman Channel off their lineup. And uh, they're suggesting that you go and watch, like they're like suggesting alternative content. They're pointing people to like, like, like reality-ish shows that deal in hunting in some way. It'd be like if you told people that, you know, that we're not going to cover the UFC anymore. So watch but, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, go watch WWF, right? Uh, okay. It'd be like, that's yeah. like, so if you have Verizon, if you use Verizon in any way, shape, or form, do me a favor and a lot of, and just do people a favor and um, make sure to go and complain about that. And what is this? Because... Uh, what, it's how a contract, it's, to it's me. a contract dispute of okay. some sort. So the way it was explained to me was that there's some sort of an agenda to push out outdoor programming. You don't believe that's the case. I don't know if that's true or not. You think it's just a contract I want, issue. It, here, the reason I do wonder if there's, there's something like that is it could be that you know it definitely came about. It, it, it seems to have definitely come about at the time of the Cecil the Lion deal oh. for sure. They and they also said, "Oh, it's low viewership." But they carry networks that are lower viewership. Al Jazeera, right? they, they carry mm-hmm. a lot of networks that are lower. Um, I think with the right, I think with some pressure, it'll get just pressure from viewers who want to explain that they want the show, what the shows mean. Um, I think that if someone, if they are making some kind of stand, and it is like, "Oh, we don't approve of hunting," I would say, "Look at my show and ask yourself: Is my show a negative or a positive?" for wildlife and conservation i think the answer is pretty clear i would like to see them really change their mind about that and how do people get in touch there's there's a website right there is a website also just go and let if you use any kind of verizon product man your phone i've i use verizon for my phone and i've definitely let them know um yeah i do as well i hope people can get in there and, and and demand access back yeah i'm trying to find the website because i think it was explained to me did so, someone send it to me? You know, you can all. Yeah, yeah here it is. Here it is right here. Um, okay. Uh, you can also. Outdoor, here it is. I'm sorry. Oh. Keep, it's keepmyoutdoortv.com. So go to keepmyoutdoortv.com. One word, TV, T, the letter T, letter V. Keepmyoutdoortv.com. And a link. There's a link to call and write their representatives in Washington 
and uh, there it is right there. So that is um, that's the issue, and uh, this is a way to uh, to voice your disapproval of this issue. There's handsome Steve Ranella right there. Oh, yeah, man. Now you can always get my show. You know that meeater.vhx.tv but it's important man it's like the network sportsman channel has been so good to work with over the years because they never ever mess with us about content we do the kind of show we want we put out the kind of message we want it's like it's just the mo- it's just so nice and they and they just allow you to do authentic stuff that you think is best it's just they've been great great to work with and i hate to see him crippled in any way whatever well, the reason is we'll put the word out i'll put this out on twitter and facebook tonight and uh hopefully we can make some sort of an impact uh in the meantime you got to check out the meat eater podcast because it's fucking excellent uh i've been binge listening this week it's no joe rogan on. experience how dare great. you it's excellent it's very good. And if you're interested in hunting, it's very good. And if you're not interested in hunting, you might get interested in hunting from listening to it. But it's excellent. Um, and then the book. The book is the complete guide to hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game. It's available as of August, right? It's available yep. right Volume now. Volume 1, Big Game, is out now. Volume 2, you can pre-order. All right. That's it. And uh, when are we going hunting again, man? we got to figure one out. Let's do it. Let's figure you it wanna, out. you got to figure out what you want to go okay, for. Okay, we'll figure it out. I want to do pandas bad. Panda bears? <laughs> no, I'm joking. Fucking Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll end on that. See you later, folks. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast, and thank you to our sponsors. Thank you for f- fucking sponsoring us, all you people. CavemanCoffeeCO.com. Go there. Get yourself some delicious, fantastic, wonderful coffee, and uh, find out what the fuss is all about. Uh, Thanks to Fandango, Fandango, uh, the application that I use personally to buy tickets for the movies, and you can use that shit to go see Crimson Tide. Excuse me, Crimson Peak. Crimson Tide is like, what is that? That's like some shit that clams make something uh, poisonous or something. Crimson Peak, the Guero del Toro. It's a weird word to say because it's G-U-I-L-L-E-R-M-O. Why can't everything just be phonetic? Why the Guerma? What is what? How's there a where? Where's the W? God damn it! There's two L's. You fuck. Guermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. If you don't know who Guermo del Toro is, he's the guy that co-wrote that movie, The Strain, uh, the television show, The Strain, which is actually a pretty decent book for three quarters of the way in. Um, but it's a awesome horror movie. It's out this weekend, Crimson Peak, and you could do it for anything. And it's just a great way to buy tickets for the movies so go to fandango and get your guaranteed tickets to crimson peak uh thanks also to squarespace go to squarespace.com um and use the offer code joe to get 10 percent off your first purchase thank you squarespace and thanks to onnit.com go to o-n-n-i-t use the code word rogan and save 10 percent off any and all supplements all right uh, next podcast will be Saturday morning. Ooh, what the fuck? Yeah, special one. But we won't be releasing it until next week because uh, I got shit to do next week. I'm uh, hanging out with Anthony Bourdain in the woods. <sighs> Get your mind out of the gutter. Uh, so uh, that's it primarily, mostly, for this week. So and, uh, until then, I'll see you guys uh, next week. Much love. Thank you very much. And big kiss. Mwah, 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 mwah. 